With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. Last week, North Carolina Senior Senator Richard Burr stepped down as chairman of the powerful Senate Intelligence Committee after the FBI seized his cell phone as part of an investigation into allegations of possible insider trading. Despite painting a rosy public picture of our preparedness for the coronavirus epidemic behind the scenes, the senator was telling donors things were going to get bad. But Burr's troubles stem from allegations that he acted on that opinion and sold up to $1.7 million worth of stock just prior to a stock market correction that was in reaction to the COVID-19 outbreak. Senator Burr has said that his stock trades were based on publicly available information and called for an ethics committee investigation. But lawmakers are privy to a lot of sensitive information that can lead to ups and downs in our economy, and the FBI launched its investigation to determine if Burr benefited from that knowledge. Robert Fatarecci is the Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter who broke the story for ProPublica, and he joins us for the hour. Welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, Terry Galash worked on Capitol Hill for years and played key roles in helping to craft important pieces of legislation, including the Stop Trading on Congressional Knowledge or Stock Act of 2012. That's the law prohibiting members of Congress from engaging in what is essentially insider trading. Thank you for joining us as well. Thanks for having me. So, Robert, let me begin with you. I, I, I believe you first reported this story on March 19th, about three days after the stock market experienced the worst one-day sell-off since 1929. It was just about a month after Senator Burr uh, sold off what you describe as, quote, a significant percentage of his stocks. How did you uncover this? So it, it was pretty simple. I, I saw in it the NPR story that you just cited um, that found, you know, had a, uh, a recording of Senator Burr talking to a members-only club um, about how bad he thought the coronavirus impact was going to be on American society, school closures, uh, disruption of business travel. Um, and this was obviously, you know, around the same time he had authored an op-ed with another senator uh, telling the general public that the U.S.'s preparedness for coronavirus was, was quite good, that this is something they had, you know, uh, prepared for, for years, this kind of epidemic. Um, so I saw those two juxtaposed together, um, and I, I cover money in politics, and my first thought was, um, if he if he was aware of something that he wasn't telling the general public, 
I wonder if he also acted on it uh, to benefit his own financial interests. So I, I just went straight to the to the website where you can uh, see financial disclosures and financial transactions by members of Congress. Um, I looked up his name. I brought up the most recent form, and my jaw just dropped. Uh, the number of trades, the dollar amount of these trades. You know, I probably looked at thousands of these forms before, um, and I don't think I'd ever seen one like this one. Hmm. Uh, you reported that he unloaded between $628,000 and $1.72 million of his holdings on February the 13th in 33 separate transactions. And uh, we've been talking about this on this and other programs uh, for the last week or so. And I- I've always wondered why the spread. That's a that's a million-dollar spread in terms of how much he traded. Why, ha- why have we not been able to hit a, a definite figure? So unfortunately, lawmakers are are only required to report each of these transactions and ranges. Um, So, you know, in this case, we had, uh, you know, almost three dozen sales. So for each of those, we we have a range. So we add up all the low-end ranges and all the high-end ranges, and that's the number we end up with. And and unless the the senator or, um, you know, member of the House decides to voluntarily give us a more precise number, that's what we're left with. Uh, Tyler, among the things that you did while you were in uh, Washington working with members of Congress, you were on a team that crafted, as I said, what is essentially the the bill that outlaws members of Congress to act in their own financial self-interest based on knowledge they glean from their positions in Congress. Uh, What led to the Stock Act of 2012? Why was it written? Why did Congress feel the need to write it? Well, it's a really good question. So first, the law of insider trading applies to everyone equally. So there is a longstanding prohibition under the federal securities laws that says you can't trade while in possession of material non-public information, that you have a duty to the source of that information. And so that law, longstanding law, says if you're a corporate executive, for example, you learn information about the company. You learn it because you have a duty to the company to serve the company's best interests. You can't then misappropriate. You can't take that information for yourself and use it to your own benefit. With members of Congress, they learn an awful lot of information and their staffs learn an awful lot of information about crises as they're going to happen uh, companies come in and ask for bailouts. They, they know before almost anyone else knows when there's problems in the economy, problems with other countries, potential warfare, problems with sanctions. They learn an awful lot about what's going on. In the last financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, it turns out that a number of members of Congress, uh, while they knew what was going on in the financial markets, and were engaged in trying to bail out the financial markets and knew the government efforts to try to bail out the financial markets were also trading an awful lot of stock themselves. And when the public learned about that in a 60 Minutes piece in November of 2011, there was an immediate reaction by the public that said, oh my God, these guys are taking advantage of this information while we're struggling. And members of Congress quickly reacted and said, we have to do something. We have to make it clear that that the law applies to us too. 
And so what we did was drafted a law that says any information that a member of Congress gains that's either derived from or gained in the performance of their duty as a member of Congress um, that's material and non-public, they have a duty to not trade on that. So that's what the law does. So it makes it very, very clear that they have a duty. So even though they're just being told information by a government agency or they're just being told voluntarily information by a company that may be in trouble, they still have a duty to not trade on it. So if a member of under this law and uh, under the previous law, which covers everybody in the country, actually, uh, under this law, if a member of Congress discovers a piece of information that might be against his or her financial self-interest, they just have to suck it up and go with the flow? Or are there ways to not lose that money but also not break the law? Yeah, that's a really good question. This is part of the, the challenge. They they're actually have to suck it up. Um, this is this is one of the obligations that they have. And so, you know, when they take the oath of office, they say that they're going to faithfully discharge the duties of the office. And that duty um, is very clearly and now statutorily a duty to the American citizens. It's a duty to Congress. It's a duty to government to not trade while in possession of that. And so they, in fact, cannot take advantage of that information. And that's part of the problem, right? Because you can imagine that temptation is huge. It is huge. And it's unavoidable the minute that they have these types of holdings. So before you wrote your story, Robert Fattoretti, Fattoretti, uh, NPR obtained this recording uh, from late February in which Senator Burr told a VIP group at a social club about what he thought was going to be the economic impact of COVID-19 and that it would be far worse than what he had been saying publicly and that what most of the general public had been told by federal officials. Is that the smoking gun here? Is that an indication that whatever happened with his stock trades, it came from that inside knowledge that he shared with high-dollar donors? So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a federal prosecutor, but uh, in my opinion, I, I don't think that's a smoking gun. I think what a smoking gun would be would be uh, maybe text messages between him um, and his investment professional or text messages between him and any relatives uh, about these stock trades and what motivated them. For example, uh, a story we broke I don't know, maybe a week and a half ago, was that on the very same day that Senator Burr had his massive sell-off, his brother-in-law did as, did as well. His brother-in-law is, you know, serves on some federal board, so he's also required to disclose his stock trades. You know, uh, and that's a, that's a really big coincidence, right? I, I, yeah, I wonder, was there any communication between the two? The FBI has now seized Senator Burr's phone, um, are there any text messages between the two? Uh, is Senator Byrd discussing anything he learned um, as a senator uh, and connecting that to the idea of, hey, you know, uh, I need to sell my stocks off. You should, too. I mean, this is obviously all speculation. Um, I don't know that they communicated, but that's a question that uh, could possibly be answered now. Under, under the Security Exchange Commission law that governs us all with regard to insider trading, and then under this law that you helped craft, Tyler, the Stock Act of uh, 2012, would it be against the law for a senator 
to share information that he knew with somebody else and then for them to act on that information by trading stock as a result of it? Absolutely. Um, so the interesting thing about insider trading is that it, it prohibits not just the person who first receives the information from trading, but the, they call it tipper and tip E liability. So anybody that they tell about that mm-hmm. material non-public information, anything they do with it is also subject to liability. So not only do we have an instance here or a fact pattern that could suggest that Senator Burr may have liability, anyone else he told, that could be a family member, that could also be a, a room full of donors. So when he said, you, uh, Robert reported that uh, he told members of the Capitol Hill Club that the virus was, quote, much more aggressive in its transmission than anything that we've seen in recent history. And he warned that companies might have to curtail their employees' travel, that schools could close, and the military might be mobilized to compensate for overwhelmed hospitals. If anybody in that room took that information and thought, oh, my God, I have to trade some stock here and did it, they would be in violation. That would be correct? Absolutely correct. Okay. So had we heard that information, Robert, from anybody else anywhere else prior to Senator Byrd telling that group of people? Are you asking me if, if yes. there were any similar warnings publicly yes. at that time? Yes. Gosh, I, I don't. I don't know. I'd be. I'd be surprised if there if there weren't any. I mean, obviously there were public figures who uh, took this threat more seriously earlier than most. Um, I, I don't know specifically who, but uh, I'm sure they're out there. Tyler. Yeah. Yeah, so I think there's an interest. This raises a really important question about members of Congress in particular and government officials in particular. So if I hear information because it's my friend or my aunt on a Facebook page, it goes into a bucket of levels of seriousness and how much I trust that information. If I read about it in a newspaper, it may be a slightly higher or different level of trust in that information. If I have a senior member uh, and chairman of an intelligence committee of the United States Senate telling me something based on I don't know what, but maybe because they have more information than anybody else that I am aware of, Mike, I might give that an even different level of, of trust. So when we think about whether or not um, it's material non-public or whether or not it's uh, that information can be traded upon, that's one thing we have to focus on. The other part I think we want to go back to is the reason why there's so much interest in this, why your listeners care so much, why this story that Robert broke is so, so resonated with the public, is that when we send members of Congress to, to Congress, we elect them to represent us. Um, we want them focused on us. And as this crisis was unfolding, by his own account, Senator Burr was spending a ton of time following Asian CNBC reports and researching obscure stocks and thinking about what the pandemic trends were for his personal portfolio transactions and not focused on things like restoring our economy and keeping people alive. I mean, at the break a moment ago, we know, I heard that the NC Department of Transportation is furloughing thousands of employees. At the same time, there's more demand than ever in North Carolina for their, for their work. Um, Senator Burr should be focused on that. And instead, by his own admission, he's focused on CNBC reports out of Asia. 
And the other aspect of that, that, that's a very important point that you make. But, Robert, the other aspect from a reporter's point of view would be also that he knew that this or he really had strong feelings that this was going to be a much worse uh, situation than was being painted by other members of the government. How is that a story? Of, of course. I mean, you know, why, why did his stark warning only come in the form of a talk he gave to a exclusive members only club, right? Why, 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 why was that? Why were those warnings not in the op-ed he wrote for foxnews.com? Why were they not made in speeches on the Senate floor? Um, they weren't. Uh, and, and that's not a question Senator Burr has answered. Prior to the FBI investigation being announced, uh, uh, Robert, uh, Senator Burr himself called for a Senate investigation, a Senate ethics committee investigation into his uh, allega- into the allegations of his trading. Is that the act of someone who is guilty? Um, well, I, I'm, I'm not going to say whether it's the act of someone who's guilty or not, but I, but I will tell you there are plenty of uh, ethics experts in Washington who uh, don't have the highest opinion of Senate ethics investigations. They believe that they're too deferential to uh, members. They believe they move too slowly, that they aren't transparent enough, and they too, too rarely take action against members. Um, that By no means is that to say that there have not been impactful investigations that that, that committee has done. Um, it, it, uh, frankly, it could have also been obvious uh, to Senator Burr um, that that there, there would be calls for that kind of investigation anyway. Um, but of course, it, it was a step toward getting an independent body, a semi-independent body, to scrutinize his activities. So yeah, I, I agree with you. It was not a, a total stonewalling by any other lawmakers, we haven't talked about them, and I know you haven't reported on them, so you don't know a great deal about them, but other lawmakers, including Oklahoma Senator James Inhofe, Georgia Senator Kelly Loeffler, both Republicans, and California Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein, were involved in similar trades. Feinstein's husband sold more than a million dollars in stock in a biotech firm prior to our finding out about how bad this was going to be. Loeffler, whose husband is the CEO of the company that owns the New York Stock Exchange made an $18.7 million, well, $18.7 million worth of trades, including selling ExxonMobil. We know what's happened to oil prices and including buying Citrix, which is a company that owns, I think, WebEx, among, among other things, or GoToMeeting uh, software, which is being abundantly used by people all over the country right now. Will they find themselves under similar investigations? Robert. Well, we, we do know that there has been some law enforcement scrutiny in all of these cases, or I don't know about all of these cases, uh, but Senator Leffler, she, she has turned over documents to federal authorities. Um, Senator Feinstein, uh, I believe her representatives have answered some basic questions from federal authorities. So by no means is Senator Burr the only one receiving federal law enforcement scrutiny. That said, Far and away, it seems like he is receiving the most intense scrutiny. The fact that there was a search warrant, the fact that they seized a phone um, at his home, that, that hasn't been we, – we haven't seen anything like that with any of the other members of Congress. What I'm seeing here in Harlem is they, they forced everyone to wear masks. I went to the store today. 
um, the people say, you need your mask on, you know, before I can enter, they had like a, a whole monitor, uh, a black person there telling other black people what they can. They set up the lines in all the stores where you have a black person telling you, hey, go to line five, instead of you just picking what line you want to stand on. It's just, it's just to be ridiculous. It's kind of ridiculous, the, the mask, wearing masks. Um, it makes it to where I don't really want to say hi to people when they're wearing masks. And, you know, I, I go about my day, I, I say hi to, to people um, uh, every now and then, or a lot sometimes. But I don't want to talk to anybody with a mask. And it, it makes it to where I don't know, you know, if people are going to do a crime. I don't think, you know, but it's now everybody has a mask on. But it's real, really ridiculous. And they weren't wearing a mask when everybody can see the chemtrails. But nobody can see this COVID-19. But, you know, whatever. If you spend any time on social media these days, you know what I'm talking about. Posts about the coronavirus that sound ridiculous or just downright fake. Rumors, conspiracy theories, false information. Yoel Roth is the head of site integrity at Twitter. The threat landscape that we're facing as social media platforms has changed significantly as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. But a lot of the ways that we combat those threats has remained the same. Just yesterday, Twitter announced it's going to start flagging misleading posts. And so this week, you'll see us introduce these labels, and we're going to continue to expand them. Facebook has been doing something similar since March, using third-party fact-checkers. Critics say it's still not enough. We reached out to Yoel Roth with Twitter, also to Nathaniel Gleischer, head of cybersecurity policy at Facebook. Gleischer told us that two social media giants have been working together to tackle disinformation during the pandemic. One of the key benefits here, as we think about bad guys trying to manipulate across the Internet, is we focus on behavior that they engage in. So that is if they're using fake accounts, if they're using networks of deceptive pages or groups, and The behavior behind these operations is very similar, whether you're talking about coronavirus or you're talking about the 2020 election or you're talking about any other topic if you're trying to sell or scam people online. And so the tools and techniques we built to deal with political manipulation, foreign interference and other challenges actually apply very effectively because the behaviors are the same. So you've both mentioned bad guys and malicious actors. Uh, who are they? How much do you know about them? And how does that knowledge inform you how to deal with individual threats of disinformation? This is Yoel. Um, our primary focus is on understanding what somebody might be trying to accomplish when they're trying to influence a conversation on our service. If you're thinking about somebody who's trying to make a quick buck by capitalizing on a discussion happening on Twitter... You could imagine somebody who is uh, engaging in spammy behavior to try and get you to click on a link or buy a product. If you make it harder and more expensive for them to do what they're doing, then generally that's going to be a strong deterrent. On the other hand, if you're dealing with somebody who's motivated by ideology or somebody who might be backed by a nation state, oftentimes you're going to need to focus on not only removing that from your service, But we believe that it's important to be public with uh, the world about the activity that we're seeing. So, Nathaniel, pick up the thread there. Where do most of the disinformation and conspiracy theories originate? Is it with individuals? Are they coordinated efforts by either governmental or non-governmental actors? What are you seeing? Yeah, I think there are a lot of – people have a lot of preconceptions about who is running 
influence operations on the internet. Everyone focuses, for example, on influence operations coming out of Iran, coming out of Russia. And we've found and removed a number of networks coming from those countries, including just last month. But the truth is, the majority of influence operations that we see around the world are actually individuals or groups operating within their own country and trying to influence public debate locally. This is why when we conduct our investigations, and this connects with some things UL was just saying, we focus so clearly on behavior. That is, what are the patterns or deceptive techniques that someone is using that allow us to say that's not okay, no one should be able to do that. So, Nathaniel, you said that when determining what to take down, Facebook tends to focus on the behavior of the bad actors rather than um, content. But I think about like this video, uh, Plandemic, a 26-minute video produced by an anti-vaxxer, um, and it racks up millions of views precisely because it's posted and reposted again and again by, you know, your uncle sends you and a bunch of people a post. How do you deal with videos like Plandemic, which go viral? Yeah, that's a good question. And it gets to the fact that there's no single tool that you can use to respond in this space because people talk about disinformation or misinformation, but really it's a range of different challenges that all sit next to each other. There are times when content crosses very specific lines in our community standards such that it could lead to imminent harm. Uh, it could be hate speech or otherwise violate our policies. For example, in the video that you mentioned, one of the things that happened in there was that it suggested that wearing a mask could make you sick. That's the sort of thing that could lead to imminent harm. So in that case, we remove the video based on that content, even though there wasn't necessarily deceptive behavior behind the spreading. And then finally, there are some actors that are such sort of consistent repeat offenders that we might take action against an actor regardless of what they're saying and regardless of the behavior they're engaged in. A really good example of this is the Russian Internet Research Agency and the organizations that still persist that are related back to it. They have engaged in enough deceptive behavior that if we see anything linked to them, we will take action on it regardless of the content, regardless of the behaviors. So it tied into this, Yoel. Uh, last Friday, State Department officials said they identified a new network of inauthentic accounts – that's how they phrased it – on Twitter that are pushing Chinese propaganda, trying to spread this narrative that China is not responsible for the spread of COVID-19. And State Department officials say they suspect China and Russia are behind this effort. Um, Twitter disputes at least some of this. Can you explain, though, what is Twitter disputing precisely? So to speak specifically to the research from the State Department – Last Thursday, we were provided with more than 5,000 accounts that they indicated were associated with China and were engaged in some sort of inauthentic or inorganic activity. We've started to investigate them, um, and much of what we've analyzed thus far shows no indication that the accounts were supportive of Chinese positions. And in a lot of cases, we actually saw accounts that were openly critical of China. And so this really highlights one of the challenges of doing this type of research. Um, oftentimes, you need a lot of information specifically about who the threat actors are, how they're accessing your service, what the technical indicators are of what they're doing in order to reach a conclusion about whether something is inauthentic or coordinated. Um, and that's not what we saw thus far in our investigation of the accounts we received from the State Department. So content moderation for such a global problem, how are you doing this? Are you working with organizations like the WHO? Um, what new strategies have you been kind of forced to come up with? Yeah, so this is Nathaniel. Um, the truth is, is that disinformation or misinformation isn't something that any one platform 
or quite frankly, any one industry can tackle by itself. We see the actors engaged here leveraging a wide range of social media platforms, also targeting traditional media and other forms of communications. Obviously, there are particular challenges in a situation like coronavirus where the truth on the ground evolves over time as doctors understand more and more about what's happening. So as much of our work that is focused on removing false information or tackling deceptive behavior, we're also very focused on getting out accurate information. One of the clearest places where you'll see false information emerge is when you don't have clear information out there for people to find. And so we've done a lot of work with the organizations you mentioned through our Coronavirus Information Center and other and in other ways to make sure that they can get out accurate information and that the public can find accurate information to know what to do and what steps to take. Nathaniel Gleischer, the head of cybersecurity policy at Facebook, and Yoel Roth, he's the head of site integrity at Twitter. Thank you both very much for this conversation. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I, like you, am very proud that a black man sits in the White House. But I also understand very clearly, and we should understand that it is the White House. And now we want to remember a man who died of COVID-19. Wilson Roosevelt German started working at the White House when Harry Truman was president. When he retired, Barack Obama was in the Oval Office. German was first hired to the White House staff as a cleaner in 1957. But his granddaughter, Shantae Taylor Gay, says he worked his way up to Butler. He loved hosting their parties, setting the table, spreading the napkins, making sure everything was placed on the table correct so they could have a fine dinner. And yes, he did have his favorite first families, both Presidents Bush and President Obama's. My grandfather took his job as working with a person and learning that person for who they were instead of worrying about if they were Republicans or Democrats. It was all about the person. As for his own family, like it or not, German brought his work home with him. My table manners are 100% because my granddad did not allow us to do anything wrong at the table. Even to the day that he passed, he was teaching my daughter table etiquette and how to set up your tables correctly. And he savored the moments when he could take his own family to work, too. My grandfather would bring us to the White House Christmas parties. One year I went, they had a white chocolate model of the White House. It was just amazing. We got to meet a lot of presidents, and he was so proud to introduce us as his grandchildren. Shantae Taylor-Gay says her grandfather loved working in the White House so much that when he attempted to retire in 2001, it didn't take. He came back a few years later because he missed his job, and he loved what he was doing. And he started working as a doorman and being the elevator operator for the president's family. William Roosevelt German continued to work in the White House until he retired for good in 2012. He he died of the coronavirus on May 16th at 91 years old. White supremacy is a sickness. 
Just three months ago, towards the end of February, safe to say most of America was not that concerned about the coronavirus. Today, deaths in the U.S. from COVID-19 are fast closing in on 100,000, which leads us to the question, who in America is dying in this pandemic? Increasingly, we're learning that the hardest hit communities are also the poorest, the most crowded. They are communities of color where rates of chronic disease run high. Well, it is unfortunately not that surprising. That is Jervis Chen, a social epidemiologist at Harvard. He and his colleagues have been combing through data, looking closely at confirmed cases and what are called excess deaths. Those are deaths beyond what is expected in a normal year. In Massachusetts, they found excess deaths have surged in the very communities that are already struggling. These are communities in which people may be working, quote-unquote, essential jobs where they're unable to practice physical distancing. These are communities where people are living in crowded conditions so that if one person in a household gets infected, it's very difficult for them to isolate and protect the other people in their households. We know there have been widespread shortages of personal protective equipment, and so essential workers don't have access to them. These are also communities in which people may not be getting access to testing or to care, and so that increases their risk of dying if they do get infected. So it really is compounding of inequality on top of inequality. Just to put this in in human terms, I was struck by a line uh, in the Boston Globe, which I know your Harvard team worked with in terms of trying to comb through and make sense of this data. And they write that in Lawrence, Massachusetts, where there's a high Latino population, a funeral home saw its workload double last month. Or that in Medford, which is a, a city with pockets of diversity and poverty, that, that burial permits doubled. You're looking at the data that is behind that. Yes, we're trying to look at the data, but there's also a human perspective. So that when I look at the data and I see the number of excess deaths creeping up, you know, 100, 200, 300 over the course of April, that's per week, each of those has implications for people's families, their communities, their social networks. So it's important to remember that excess deaths is reflecting real loss of human life. Hmm. Was there anything you spotted in the data that surprised you? So one of the things that we've been working with recently is trying to get a handle on when the surge in excess mortality actually started. It's very clear for April that there are very large increases in excess mortality. But we're seeing some hints in the data that that surge in mortality might have started earlier in the less disadvantaged areas. So what we think is happening in those more affluent areas is those reflect the introduction of coronavirus into communities by more um, affluent people who were traveling in the early part of 2020. And then what happened is that it spread to other communities, and that's where we see the real surge, sort of like when you light a match and throw it into a bunch of tinder, that it really takes off. But the earlier phase does seem to be consistent with the idea that it's being introduced by people who have the economic means to travel before it really takes off in the communities that are more disadvantaged. Huh. Why is it important to know now who is dying? So it's important that we try to find this out as quickly as possible in real time because we're probably going to see more waves. 
as we go through this next year. And so knowing what we did and what we did wrong the first time around will help us understand better how to direct the resources. So for example, creating resources for people in communities to be able to isolate, so housing or temporary housing for people who test positive so that they can protect their families is really important. Knowing where to direct PPE as it becomes more available um, so that not just um, the essential workers in hospitals, but also essential workers in things like public transportation or grocery store workers, those populations can get the PPE that they need. And also directing testing um, to communities who need it the most. Those things could be really important. That is Jarvis Chen. He's a social epidemiologist at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Thanks so much. Thank you. If you're going to dominate people over a long period of time and do it in a scientific manner, one of the easiest ways to do it, if not the easiest way, is to keep the people confused. How much the coronavirus is circulating in the country is a vital question right now. Diagnostic tests can tell us how many people are actively infected with the virus. And now the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have a national dashboard to collect testing data from all over the U.S. But it turns out that dashboard is mixing together different kinds of data. And public health experts warn that that can muddy the picture. Here to explain is NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin. Hey, Selena. Hi, Elsa. So first, what does that even mean that the CDC is combining different kinds of tests into this dashboard? Right. So the CDC is mushing together diagnostic tests with serology or antibody tests. So if you're trying to understand how much virus is out there in your community, tracking the number of diagnostic tests done in a place gives us a lot of information. There's just the raw number. Are we completing enough tests? And that has been a big issue since widespread testing was so slow to get going in the U.S., mm-hmm. And then there's the information from how many come back positive, which is the positivity rate. So that's one metric communities look at to figure out how much virus is circulating and whether enough tests are being conducted. So then antibody tests tell us something totally different. How many people in your community were once infected and now have antibodies? If you add antibody tests to your diagnostic tests, then those metrics, the positivity rate and the number of tests completed, are much less accurate and potentially Uh, misleading. Okay, so... How did all of this come to light, that the CDC was mixing these things together? The CDC launched its national testing dashboard about two weeks ago, and a team running the COVID tracking project at The Atlantic did an analysis this week, which found that the CDC's testing numbers for some states were really different than the state's own numbers. So reporter Daniel Rivero at NPR member station WLRN in Miami asked the CDC about the discrepancy in Florida, and the CDC told him that the higher number that it found included Florida's antibody tests, and a CDC spokeswoman confirmed to NPR that this was true for Florida and several other states and explained it was because, quote, some states are including serology data in their testing numbers, but added that the agency plans to separate those numbers out again in the coming weeks. So what's been the reaction to this development in the public health world? How are people looking at this mixing of data that the CDC has been doing? 
Well, epidemiologists and other public health experts have unequivocally said that it does not make sense to lump these two kinds of tests together. And the risk is that it might look like you're doing more diagnostic testing than you really are. And the positivity rate might look lower than it really is. Mm. And these numbers Mm. really matter. Policymakers and even members of the public are using them to make decisions about how safe it is to do certain things. So the integrity of the data and having the public trust that it's accurate and clear is incredibly important. That is NPR's Selena Simmons Duffin. Thank you, Selena. Thank you. Carry me back to old Virginia. The Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, which includes parts of Maryland and Northern Virginia, is still under lockdown. And it's one of three areas in the country where cases of the coronavirus are plateauing instead of declining. Virginia's Governor Ralph Northam okayed the phased reopening of most of the state last week. He's also the only sitting governor who is also a medical doctor. And he joins us now from Richmond. Governor Northam, thank you very much for for talking with us today. You have begun to open up the state uh, of Virginia like so many other states. But we also learned today that Virginia had, uh, I guess, the highest number of new cases Uh, reported uh, since the pandemic began. How do you know that you're not moving too fast? Well, Judy, first of all, thanks so much for having me on today. And I hope that you and your your viewers are are healthy and safe. Uh, We have uh, been fighting this pandemic uh, for a little bit over two months now. Our first case was on March the 7th. uh, And we have followed the CDC guidelines uh, that were outlined, um, and those are looking at the percent positivity, uh, the hospital capacity that we have, the amount of PPE, the amount of testing. And and most of Virginia, Judy, uh, a week ago was ready to move into phase one following uh, those criteria. Obviously, Northern Virginia, uh, which is uh, neighboring with, with Maryland and, and Washington, D.C., still have high numbers. Uh, we had uh, discussions with their leadership uh, and decided that we would delay entering phase one uh, for two weeks. And to your point, uh, we did have a high number of, of positive tests today. The great majority of them are up in northern Virginia. So we're monitoring that very closely. And, and again, we're encouraging people in, in the northern Virginia area to just stay home until these numbers go down a bit. And a separate uh, question, Governor, which has to do with um, what's happening in the D.C. area, and that is we see that as these areas open up in the less populated parts of the country, as in uh, rural Virginia, southern Virginia, people from the urban areas are going out to these parts uh, of the state and of the country. Is Virginia prepared for, for what could happen as people move around the state more? Well, we're monitoring that very closely, and we have encouraged individuals that live in in northern Virginia to to please stay home. Uh, We've had outbreaks in other parts of the state, as you know, Judy, uh, over on the eastern shore where I'm from. uh, We've had outbreaks at our meat processing plants. Uh, Nursing homes have been affected by this. So this virus uh, doesn't know uh, boundaries of of counties and and states, and we all have to just really remain vigilant and and keep our hygiene, the washing of our hands, wearing face uh, protection, and keep that social distancing. We know that those things work, and and, uh, Virginians overall have been very good about following those guidelines. How prepared, though, would you say... Virginia is because isn't you you have to factor in a certain amount of unpredictability, don't you? 
Absolutely. That's why they call this a novel virus. There are so many things that we don't know. We don't know whether it's seasonal. We don't have a vaccination. There's no treatment for uh, the virus. So we are monitoring uh, our numbers very closely. And and we have the ability now, and it's getting better every day, Judy, to, to do testing. Uh, we're hiring a number of individuals to do tracing. We have the PPE that we have that's, uh, that's necessary in Virginia. So each day is better. But, you know, one of the points I would make, Judy, we, we've been fighting this biological war for over two months now, and we started with no supplies. And being an Army doctor, as I was, uh, we've had our hands tied. And so uh, we've worked very hard to to uh, accumulate more PPE, that's going well, and our testing capabilities. Yesterday, we tested over 10,000 uh, individuals in Virginia, so each day is better. Obviously, we're, we're working uh, to make it better every day, and we want Virginians to be safe, and, and as we move into these phases, um, we'll do it responsibly. A different subject, Governor, and that has to do with voting and uh, mail-in voting. You reported yesterday that in local elections in Virginia this week, there was a much higher number of people. I think you said reported 55,000 Virginians voted uh, in these mail in these local elections uh, with mail-in ballots, much more than in the last election four years ago. You're encouraging Virginians to mail in their votes for the June primary. But we know that President Trump uh, in the last few days and again today is saying that mail-in voting, in his words, uh, leads to fraud. Uh, he said uh, in so many words it's illegal. He said it's going to lead to total election fraud. What do you say to that? And, and do you see this as an effort to, to uh, discourage voting in November on the part of Democrats? Well, Judy, nobody should have to choose between their health and, and casting a, a ballot. And, and this is not the time to play politics. And, and so much of, of what uh, our president has done is, is aspirational. There have been so many mixed messages that have come out of Washington. And it's really why we're in somewhat of the predicament that we're in now. But, but we need to make sure that we can uh, allow individuals to cast their ballot and that they can do it safely. So, you know, we don't know what this virus is going to do over the next weeks to months, but certainly um, if in November the virus is still out there and people are putting their lives at risk, poll workers are putting their lives at risk, then we need to find another means of voting to make sure that everybody's voice is heard um, and that we can elect a president uh, in November. When the president claims this leads to, in his words, total election fraud, uh, how do you respond to that? Well, it's just baseless is what it is. And, and uh, again, uh, we, we have shown, uh, we showed it uh, a couple of days ago, uh, that it's, uh, you know, it's a way that people can vote uh, and it's a way that they can protect their health. So, again, we need to be flexible. Uh, as we move forward. And I hope that uh, November the 3rd, uh, which we have made a, a, a holiday in Virginia, we got rid of Lee Davis, or Lee Jackson uh, holiday, as you know. Uh, we hope that people will go to be able to vote at the polls and, and do it safely. But if they can't, we've got to find other means to do that. Governor Ralph Northam of Virginia. Thank you very much, Governor. Thank you so much, Judy. Hey!
We want to continue our discussion of firearms and their role in this pandemic with a look at the presence of armed protesters in Lansing in recent weeks and how this ideology fits into the larger history of the Michigan militia and the National Rifle Association. Joining me now are two people who have been following the story and can talk about what it means. We are joined now by Frank Smythe, who is an investigative journalist who specializes in armed conflicts, organized crime, and human rights overseas, and on the gun movement and its influence here at home. Frank Smythe, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Yes, and Frank is joining us via Skype. Uh, Also with us is Russ McNamara. He's a reporter and host of WDET's All Things Considered. Russ, welcome to the program. Good morning, Kayla. Yeah. All right. So first, I'm going to start with you, Russ. Uh, you've been following that story in Lansing and visiting gun shops around Metro Detroit. Uh, tell us what you're seeing on the ground. Well, most of these groups are harmless. Uh, remaining on the fringes of society, you know, you might work with some of these people and you can talk with these people and maybe get into a very good discussion and conversation with them. You can tell by their gear. They've got the high-powered rifles, but piecemeal tactical gear. These guys are not professionals. These are, you know, fairly amateurs. And for the longest time, they kind of stayed out of the way. Uh, You look at the first major rise in militias uh, that came after Waco and Ruby Ridge, you know, high-profile standoffs that really fueled anti-government sentiment. Then the Oklahoma City bombing uh, with deep Michigan ties uh, actually led to a decline because the FBI – and ATF was watching closely. A lot of these groups are pretty well self-policed, and people that go overboard with certain amounts of rhetoric and threats. We had an incident, you know, about five years ago where a guy tried to arrest Debbie Stabenow for treason, and his own militia group was like, hey, we don't, we don't even like this guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's essentially how it works out. But now, since the election of President Trump, uh, the groups are on the rise. They feel emboldened, and they're like, yeah, the conspiracy fringe is now getting more of a voice, and that's leading to more people kind of getting caught up in everything overall. Mm. Uh, Frank, you've been deeply embedded in uh, various armed conflicts throughout the world. Tell us how the Michigan militia presence in Lansing strikes you in this moment. I, I, and I will start by saying that I don't quite understand what, guns have to do with stay-at-home orders or with a public health crisis. I I do get that people feel as though their rights are being infringed, but the response to that being not just a gun, but uh, an automatic gun, I mean, a a very, very uh, militaristic-style gun strikes me as, as odd. Does it strike you the same way? Yeah, I think it's very odd. I think it's exceptional in the world. There's no other advanced nation on earth where you would see somebody heavily armed going into a, a subway shop in order to buy a sandwich. Um, it wouldn't be legal to carry those weapons, including even there was one picture of a gentleman with a rocket launcher. Uh, whether that was inert or, or active is unclear, but still it's, it's an ominous sign. And what it is, as your other guest, as Russ mentioned, the militia movement of the 90s tapered off after the Oklahoma City bombing mm-hmm. when people realized, including groups like the NRA, that these groups were too radical, that there were white, white power groups among them and groups uh, and other paramilitary groups with white power uh, ties or not that were intent on committing violence. And the movement died down. 
Now we're seeing this movement come back, and I think this is an ominous sign because it erodes the rule of law. It says that armed intimidation is permissible and that citizens have the right to interpret the Constitution, or more specifically the Bill of Rights, as they deem fit. They don't need courts to interpret it for them. They don't have to wait for legislators to pass laws. There are, there, there's a group called Three Percenters, which is one of the main umbrella groups of of, uh, of armed paramilitaries that are active today. And they've put out videos where an officer is trying to read a local statute about what, what's legal and not legal in terms of an armed protest in their particular state. And the protester said, oh, I don't need that. I've had the Second Amendment. I have the Constitution here in my pocket. So I, I can interpret the law for myself. And I think this is a dangerous trend, especially when you see other incidents like the shooting of Ahmad Aburi in Georgia, where you see uh, white armed men in particular taking matters into their own hands. I think this is a movement that's been galvanized. I think it's increasing. And if you see those flags, the yellow flag with the coiled timber stake and the letters don't tread on me, me, that's a flag dating back to the Revolutionary War uh, and a man, uh, a commander named Gadsden. And that flag has become the symbol of the of the modern day armed paramilitary movement, which is trying to not call itself a militia, even though they very much seem like militias, which is not waving necessarily three percenter flags and not even and not many white power uh, flags, though you see some of them that that yellow banner has become their symbol. And it's a little unclear what it means, but it it, it appeared at every one of those demonstrations yeah. in Lansing. Yeah. And in many other states around the country, and this is a movement that is emboldened, as you, as Russ said, and it's really growing stronger. And some kind of confrontation seems inevitable. Yeah, uh, I, I want to ask you, Frank, about the connection that you're referring to there uh, between uh, these these sort of armed movements and the movements that are coalesced around the idea of arms and showing off arms and and racist groups uh there are a lot of assumptions i think that get made about that connection but but there's also a lot of reality in the in the connection there and i i just want to be clear about uh what you think that connection is are these groups that are motivated either primarily or even secondarily by racism most of the groups that are out there are not necessarily motivated by racism, and some of the three percenter groups have an explicit policy not to tolerate hate speech and to be inclusive and to include people of color. And many of the adherents in these groups who tend to train uh, every other weekend in many cases with live weapons, live semi-automatic rifles and other weapons, include many veterans of the recent Iraq and Afghanistan wars which include many people of color. So there is an element of, ex- of inclusiveness in the policies of the groups. But then when you see the people protesting, they're overwhelmingly white males. There are very few people of color. And there are white power elements both within those groups and are also out there demonstrating. And when you follow these groups and look at the, what the literature and the videos that they're putting out, they don't, they don't besides having a policy – some of the three percenter groups, again, hate speech. They are not denouncing white power groups. They're not standing up and saying, no, we don't want you uh, to be part of our movement. They're saying if you're out there and you're demonstrating against the same thing that I am and you're armed and I'm armed, then that's fine. I'm not going to worry about 
whether or not you also are, are a member of a white power group. And I think this is a this is a, a, a boondoggle for white power groups because it allows them to become part of a movement that's growing very popular among the edges of the right wing mm. and really becoming more mainstream. We don't see elected Republican officials denouncing these groups either, even though their intimidation is becoming more overt and their disrespect for the rule of law is something that I think is uh, we need to keep an eye on. And white power groups are certainly part of this mix. And I think we may see more of them as this escalates mm. and continues. Uh, Russ, you recently talked with Michigan State Senator Mallory McMorrow, who expressed really deep concerns about the presence of these armed protesters in Lansing. Let's first hear about uh, a little bit about what she said when you spoke with her recently. I'd be lying if I said I was felt completely safe. And I know that that is the goal, right? When somebody comes dressed in full tactical gear, carrying rifles, you know, I, I don't see what the goal is besides intimidation. Yeah, that idea of this this action as intended to intimidate members of the legislature to do what they want them to do. Russ, talk a little more about uh, what she and others in the state legislature are thinking and doing as all of this unfolds around them. Well, it's got to be kind of strange to be in the Senate and then to look up into the gallery above you and see men with rifles strapped to their backs. It's, you know, a little bit disconcerting. That's not something that you would see in practically every any other legislature, not only in the United States, but across the world. So she's concerned, especially when, you know, if guns are legal, then bringing a gun to a protest isn't really that necessary. So I can understand what she means by intimidation. Uh, just look what the Republican leaders did uh, this past week uh, on Thursday. There was a big protest planned, and they decided to just take the day off. They canceled the session altogether. That was kind of surprising, but that's an also admission by you know Republican majority Senate leader uh, Mike Shirky saying, okay, this has maybe gotten out of hand. He didn't know what the some of the online vitriol and violent rhetoric from some people after that Metro Times report, but still, you know, just canceling session and then backing away to try to diffuse the tension doesn't really diffuse anything when you're still not considering allowing uh, or banning guns altogether in the state legislature. Hmm. Uh, last week, Michigan Representative Sarah Anthony was escorted into the Capitol building by three armed African-American men which made a really striking statement about the ways armed civilians are viewed a little differently, maybe if uh, they're white or if they're people of color. Um, Russ, talk about what uh, Sarah Anthony did and what the reaction was to other people in Lansing to seeing armed African-Americans uh, escorting well, someone into the building. I mean, of course, something like this goes all the way back to uh, the Black Panthers in California, where, mm -hmm. you know, then-Governor Ronald Reagan couldn't get gun legislation passed quick enough in California once you had, you know, armed members of Black Panthers standing on the steps and protesting that way. And that's always kind of been the case. When there was, you know, some issues going on with the prep public schools about 20 years ago, uh, then-Governor John Engler decided then that would be a good good idea to put 
you know, metal detectors in temporarily at the Capitol when people from Detroit were coming up. So there's always been a double standard when it comes to, you know, African-Americans walking around with guns and it can like with some of these uh, weekend militias uh, walking around with guns. And that's mm. kind of always been the case. And I don't know about you, Stephen, but I don't see that changing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Call and tell us uh, what you think of these armed protests that we're seeing in Lansing, what they mean to you. Are they simple expressions of people's constitutional rights? Or do you think that they reach the level of potential intimidation, attempted intimidation of members of the state house or Senate or uh, intimidation of the governor. Uh, as always, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or to Twitter and put comments there. We'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Bruce in Beverly Hills. Bruce, welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, sure. uh, great uh, subject, uh, Frank, and uh, everybody just really hitting it on the head. I, uh, I'm a business owner in Beverly Hills, and I, I do own a firearm, and my confusion is actually already been addressed. I was looking at why there is a, a, a gun put out to fight a virus um, in this in this nature, and if it was the shoes on the other foot where there were a bunch of uh, uh, African-American men uh, standing there with long rifles and, and proclaiming it would be called a gang instead of a militia. Mm-hmm. Militia seems to be a good word now. Mm-hmm. As, as an American patriot. And also, before I go, I wanted to uh, thank you for being human. I, my deepest condolences to your friend who called in all the time. I heard your uh, broadcast. And, um, well, I love you, Stephen. <laughs> oh, thank you. I appreciate that, Bruce. And I really appreciate the, the acknowledgement of, of Tom Wilson, our longtime listener and most frequent caller who, who, who did die of, uh, of COVID last month. Uh, we, we continue to get really great uh, sentiments expressed by people uh, who will miss Tom as much uh, as we will. Uh, and, and thanks again for the call. Uh, Frank Smythe, uh, address this question of why people feel the need to get a gun to buy a gun, to brandish a gun, because of something like a pandemic. Again, this there, there's this disconnect, I think, about what people are feeling and why this is the reaction that they have to those feelings. Well, I think the pandemic is very validating for gun activists throughout the country, and it's certainly validating and uh, a boondoggle for the National Rifle Association that has long promoted an ideology that you need guns, A, for your own personal safety against any kind of individual crimes. B, you need guns in the case of some sort of natural disaster or an event like the hurricane when there may be lawlessness and anarchy and the government may not be there to protect yourself. And you need weapons, according to the same ideology, in order to be able to defend yourself collectively against a potentially repressive government. Now, one can argue about the merits of these claims, which I find to be largely ahistorical and based more, based more on myths than facts. But COVID-19 is a perfect storm to galvanize this movement to say, see, we don't know what's happening. We don't know how long this is going to last. We don't necessarily believe everything we're hearing. But as long as that I have an AR-15 or another semi-automatic rifle and enough ammunition, I feel safe. 
and my and my fellow armed activists also feel safe. And I think that's extremely dangerous. And the health measures of COVID-19, which most people would agree seem to be reasonable, seem to be science-based, there's no politics to it, it's a necessary condition, are become a, gr- a perfect flashpoint for these same gun activists to see, no, we're going to stand up for our freedom. I'm not going to wear a mask because it's a violation of my freedom. I'm going to go into a store and demand to be served because it's because I have it's it's part of my rights as an American, and that's an incredibly dangerous thing uh, in terms of individualism and uh, taken taken to an extraordinary level, and it's breaking down the social contract that keeps society together. It's not normal to have weapons in a political legislative uh, uh, assembly or mm. at, in the foyer of the building, and when you start having that, it means that you're no longer you're no longer seeing the political process itself as being legitimate. And when this happens in less developed nations, experts are usually predicting armed conflicts, which I've seen in a number of places. Here, because it's the United States, we've kind of normalized this. But I don't think there's anything normal about it, Steve. The city of Philadelphia recently marked a grim anniversary. On May 13, 1985, police were trying to serve several warrants on members of a black nationalist back-to-nature group called MOVE who were living inside a townhouse in West Philadelphia. The hours-long standoff ended with a police helicopter dropping explosives on the roof. Eleven people inside the house were killed, including five children, and more than 60 nearby homes also burned in the conflagration, leaving hundreds of people homeless. In the years following, a grand jury considered whether criminal charges should be brought. The city also convened a special move commission to review what happened. No charges were ever filed, but the inquiries faulted the city's top officials for whatever role they may have played in putting the plan in motion or failing to stop it. And those officials criticized in the scathing report included the mayor of Philadelphia at the time, W. Wilson Good Sr. Mayor Good apologized in a televised address the following day and several times afterwards. But last week, he wrote an op-ed published in The Guardian calling on the city of Philadelphia to finally formally apologize for what happened as well. And he is with us now. Welcome, Mr. Mayor. Thank you for speaking with us. Uh, Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, you pointed out in your piece for The Guardian that you were not directly involved in the decision to use an incendiary device in a residential neighborhood, you know, with children in the house and so forth. So why did you feel you had to apologize that first time in 1985 and and a number of times since? Uh, I was mayor of the city of Philadelphia. I was the chief executive officer. I appointed everyone at the site who made those decisions. I'm accountable for those I point. I'm accountable for those decisions that they make. And I felt it necessary from the very beginning that if I take credit for good things that happen, I also need to take responsibility for bad things that people I pointed and put in charge of departments they make bad decisions, then I'm accountable for that. As I mentioned, I mean, this 
this has not gone unexamined over the years. There was a grand jury convened. The MOVE Commission did exhaustive work to determine the chain of responsibility for various decisions. What do you think a, a formal apology from the city does that those official inquiries could not? Like, what's missing for you? We are now in a new generation of MOVE members of the MOVE family. Many other people who were involved then have died. And the history is somewhat foggy about what really happened because different people tell different stories about what happened. I think it's important for the city at this point to own up to its responsibility in what happened uh, and to apologize to not only to the MOVE members, but also to those police officers and firefighters and families who were there and to the neighbors who lost their homes. I think it's important that we finally get it right out there for the sake of the MOVE members and MOVE families and for the sake of the people who lived in that neighborhood and are still living there and still need to be made whole. Last week, 11 Philadelphia City Council members signed on to a letter calling the bombing a, quote, brutal attack carried out by the city of Philadelphia on its own citizens, unquote, and say they plan to introduce a formal resolution of apology later this year. But the current mayor, Jim Kenney, says that his administration has no plans to issue an official apology. What do you think it is that seems so controversial about something that so many people have already acknowledged was wrong? Well, I think that uh, even the language in the resolution used the word brutal attack. Uh, I I don't believe uh, that there was any intent on the part who made a decision to drop a device on the roof to harm people. Uh, And in fact, the dropping of the device itself did not harm anyone. It was a second decision made by the police commissioner and fire commissioner to let the fire burn that harmed the people. Mm. I think we need to remind people that the city does not believe that was the right thing to do and do not believe that it should ever repeat itself again. There are those who argue that it's time to move on, that relitigating these matters, which is what some people feel this is, just serves to reopen old wounds, and it's best to let them lie. Uh, Deep pain that comes from loss of life and loss of houses and treasures in houses is something that is very personal that People need to get closure on that. I think that the reason I work so hard and I've apologized now for the fourth time is I recognize and respect those persons who feel deeply harmed by what happened. And I think that by having this city apologize will not change anything in the past, but in my view, can do a lot to pave a way to a better future. 
That's W. Wilson Good Sr. He served as mayor of Philadelphia for two terms. He was also deputy assistant secretary of education in the Clinton administration. And he's the director of AMACHI, which is a mentoring program for children of incarcerated parents. Mr. Mayor, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much. The crisis created by the coronavirus has revealed with amazing speed how vulnerable the United States and indeed nations around the world is to something that the human eye cannot see. In a matter of days, the world's most aggressive economy crumbled like crackers. And within weeks, a few dozen coronavirus cases exploded to well over a million, while in two months, over 87,000 people lost their lives from infants to the elderly. To say that the U.S. was ill-equipped to handle this virus is understatement. The medical system was overwhelmed. The political system was outmatched, and most other systems simply shut their doors, went home, and battened down the hatches as if waiting for a great storm. But what kind of storm is silent and unseen? Apparently, a viral one. Are vaccines the solution? Apparently not. For the best vaccines claim about 40% efficacy, which means, of course, that 60% of the vaccinated population find that it isn't effective. And who really believes that the government can or will vaccinate over 300 million people? The government that can't find the people it promised to give money to will vaccinate over 300 million people? I mean, who believes that? If this were, as claimed, an America first government, what would an American last government look like? And how can there be an America first policy when Americans come in dead last in a few days 100,000 Americans men, women and children will be dead with a level of sheer incompetence that is frankly stunning the nation is marching headlong into the abyss from imprisoned nation this is Mumia Abu Jamal Man, I am tired of that. I am not passing. I am black. Do you hear me, man? Do you understand? I am black. I'm a nigga. Do you understand me? I was born black. I live black. And I'm going to die probably because I'm black. Because some cracker that knows I'm black better than you, nigga, is probably going to put a bullet in the back of my head. Former Vice President Joe Biden is walking back some comments he made this morning about African-Americans considering re-electing President Trump. If you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. 
Joe Biden speaking on the radio program The Breakfast Club. We'll hear uh, for more on the reaction to his comments and some other news from the campaign trail this week. We are joined by NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith. Hey, Tam. Hello. And NPR political correspondent Asma Khalid. Hello, Asma. Hi there. Asma, you first because you're covering the Biden campaign. What happened this morning? Well, Joe Biden went on The Breakfast Club this morning. And and if folks aren't particularly familiar with that, it's a show, it's a radio show, and it's a fairly popular, influential show that particularly appeals to black millennials. And Biden hadn't been on the show before. Um, Anyhow, you know, the host, Charlemagne the God, was pressing Biden on a bunch of issues, asking him essentially what he intends to do for black voters. And at the end of the interview, Biden made this comment, you know, kind of unsolicited, that if you don't know who to vote for between him and Trump, then you're not black. Charlemagne responded by saying that it's got nothing to do with Trump. He wants to talk about what Biden is going to do for his community. And then earlier this afternoon, the former vice president went on a call with the U.S. Black Chamber of Commerce, and he tried to clean this mess up. He said that perhaps he was too cavalier in his comments and that he should not have been such a wise guy. He realizes now that his comments came off sounding as if he was taking the black vote for granted, but he says he's never, ever taken African-American voters for granted. Tam, let me pull you in here. President Trump is deeply unpopular among African-American voters, but his campaign was all over this today. What did they say? Well, yeah, they responded very rapidly, amplifying Biden's comments uh, in their social media channels, getting videos out. And then they scrambled together a conference call for reporters uh, with South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. He is the only black Republican in the Senate, and uh, he he spoke on the call. I was struck by the condescension and the arrogance in his comment. I could not believe my ears that he would stoop solo to tell folks what they should do, how they should think, and what it means to be black. The Trump campaign has made quite a show of its effort to win over at least some small share of black voters in 2020, highlighting things like the criminal justice reform legislation President Trump signed. But amplifying this controversy serves another purpose for the Trump campaign besides persuasion. It could also help depress enthusiasm for for Biden among a voter demographic that is very important uh, to the Democratic base. Hmm. Asma, how worried should the Biden camp be? about that. Well, look, I mean, did this interview really turn off a voter who is already committed to Joe Biden? Probably not. But this was a huge platform for him to reach young black voters. And we know that Biden has an enthusiasm problem when it comes to all young voters, and that includes young African-American voters. You know, I've spoken to young black voters who tell me that being Barack Obama's vice president just isn't isn't enough. They're progressive and they want to know what he's going to do on policy. And one of the more interesting moments from this all was when Charlemagne the God pushed Joe Biden on, you know, the, the 1990s crime bill that he'd been fairly influential uh, in writing. And he pointed out that how Biden is speaking about this and how he's responding to it differs from how Hillary Clinton handled it four years ago. Ms. Clinton said that the crime bill we made a lot of mistakes with that, and she wanted to atone for that by becoming the next president. Like She was wrong. What happened was it wasn't the crime bill. It was the drug legislation. It was the, inst- the institution of mandatory minimums, which I oppose. Hmm. Uh, Ajma, just to situate this with the backdrop here, Biden's approach through the campaign so far has not been about stirring up, firing up the base of the Democratic Party. He's he's tried to present himself as as a centrist, as the unifying candidate. Is that still his approach? 
It is. And, you know, in fact, this morning also he was on CNBC and he pledged that he would not raise taxes on anyone making less than $400,000. It was really the kind of first glimpses we got of some of his economic tax agenda. Um, it's clear that he's not embracing a sort of full-throated economic progressivism. And it seems clear that he is making quite a play for some suburban voters who might be turned off from President Trump. Uh, Tam, last question to you, and I'm going to shift focus and ask you to look forward a bit in the campaign and ask about the conventions. Are we going to have them? We got some new hints this week. Yeah, so Democrats uh, have been planning for the potential for a virtual convention, uh, but uh, the Trump campaign is still at least publicly very focused on the idea of an in-person convention. One Trump campaign aide I spoke to today said the president and those around him see this as an opportunity to to have this dramatic moment where they say America is back and signal it with this convention. But today, GOP chairwoman Ronna McDaniel acknowledged in an interview that they could end up with something less than originally imagined. NPR's Tamara Keith and Asma Khalid, thanks to you both. You're welcome. You're welcome. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. FOMO years. Said it pretty consistently. Historic and humiliating defeat. In November, if we all survive, if the Rona does not end civilization and life as we know it before November, if we make it till the autumn, humiliating, historic defeat for Joe Biden. FOMO years said that I've been saying it for four years. (laughs) I've been saying it for four years. Uh, Today's date, Saturday, May 23rd, 2020. So I have been told. Four more years, four more. Matter of fact, oh, pause. We do workplace racism every Saturday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Just yesterday, we had someone for workplace racism, a victim of racism, and they said they were. It was a white person on the job, and they were talking, and they ended the, the dialogue with, "Cool, what was the person that wrote in? Cheetos wrote in and said the the white person ended the conversation with, cool." And we've talked many times about how in workplace situations, you're talking to a white person and they get around a black person. And now it's, uh oh, for shizzy, my nigga, hide be like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, we are in a suit and tie workplace. Who are you talking to? Now they want to show you all of their Negro dialect. They're going to just let it haul it. Would it be my nigga? What's going? What's cracking? <laughs> Excuse me, sir. We've had time, I mean, over years, it could be a whole book, at least a whole chapter. When somebody does workplace racism, uh, racist use of slang by white people. That should be a whole chapter in the book and the different ways that they pull that off. That right there, Joe Biden to go on the breakfast club. He didn't pull that on 60 Minutes. He didn't pull that on NPR. He didn't pull that on CNBC, MSNBC. He's been on uh, Bill Maher. You can pull that there. He goes on the breakfast club. You ain't even black. Ain't, you ain't even black. You gonna vote for. Why don't you just call us coons? I mean. FOMO years. Humiliating. Historic. Defeat. 
in November. They'll probably, he probably will call us coons in November because they'll blame black people and say, you lazy coons didn't even sell out. You voted for Trump and all the rest of it to blame. FOMO years. Get your excuses ready. Let's see. Uh, Speaking of losses. We were supposed to be in Toronto this weekend. Spectacular losses for 2020. Mm. Shake it off. Uh, Washington, D.C., August 5th through the 9th. We shall see. You heard in the uh, segment there, they are talking about D.C. as an epicenter, so hopefully things will be way improved by August 5th. But that is the plan. Uh, they have talked a lot. Comorbidities and what we eat and not eating healthy foods, exercising. That's what we're supposed to be doing in Toronto. We were supposed to be on the program right now talking about what a grand time we have had out of the country. Anyway, we'll see if we can make it up. Washington, D.C. Yoga. Quality eats. Maybe we'll be able to go outside. Maybe not at least be able to enjoy being out and about a little bit after all of the just chaos uh, and tragedy uh, that has taken up most of 2020 if you need more details we have folks who want to go folks who've already signed up to go so if you want to join August 5 through the 9th looking forward making up for missing out on Toronto Toronto uh, B said the second T is silent so it's Toronto all right. Whew. Tough one. Tough one. Lots of losses this year. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> I played the segment at the beginning on Senator Burr in North Carolina. We had a number of folks who talked about white people knowing about COVID-19 in advance and not saying anything, having deceptive racist motives. Uh, I think the situation with Senator Burr, uh, as well as uh, Senator Kelly Loeffler, in Georgia, lots of things happening in Georgia. The Ahmad Arbery, uh, the 11 year old black girl who was terrorized by that white woman that was in Georgia, uh, Georgia, United States Senator Kelly Loeffler, white woman. Uh, also, I don't really hear her name mentioned as much. It seems <clears throat> when they start talking about uh, having some knowledge in advance about this and lying about it, being deceptive about it or using it to get some type of personal financial gain. It's almost exclusively focused on Richard Burr. It's been a very few times where I've heard, oh, there were some other folks. This, I think, was the first time that I've heard Diane uh, Feinstein uh, and some other folks who also seem like they may have had some uh, suspicious activities uh, before all of this started happening. But I thought there were a lot of important points there. I almost <clears throat> included the sound clip of Justice when she was like 11, 10 years ago, uh, where one of the most important questions that she asks over the years is, how do white people conceal constructive information from non-white people? Bingo. You got one right there. They said it in the clip. He goes out <clears throat> publicly and Richard, oh, we got this. Rona, it's nothing. We are the mighty United States of them. You think we're going to let the Kung flu shut us? We got it. Got masks, everything. PPE, got it. <clears throat> and then privately with his white donors, they didn't specify the classification, uh, racial classification, but I strongly uh, suspect these are mostly white people, if not exclusively. He's telling, man, 
this is about to be the worst pandemic ever. Dump that stock. If you got stock in American Airlines, dump it. Exxon, dump it. You ever heard about Zoom? People are going to be at home for the next five months. They're going to be drawing penises on everything. Get as much Zoom stock as you can. Excellent. Illustrated. Uh, Kelly, I would have rather had a segment on Kelly Loeffler. They said her husband, who's probably a white man, her husband is the head of the New York Stock Exchange and he also had suspicious activity like whoa why isn't that like front page like where the Occupy Wall Street white people like everybody should be knowing his name like boom how is she going to be reelected you got all this going down in Georgia and you didn't say anything about Ahmad Arbery like why isn't that being talked about every day white people are excellent super skilled at concealing constructive information Uh, The segment on the MOVE organization in Philadelphia. That is one moment. I was extremely proud uh, to be hosting the context of white supremacy and to have been able to do this broadcast for the past 11 plus years at this point. Uh, There is a reason I include Mumia Abu-Jamal's audio segments weekly even though I often do not agree with his uh, views, but victims guaranteed qualified. But I still include his audio, Journalist, Importance of Black Journalists. Uh, he frequently talks about the move bombing. He just did a report on Mother's Day because it happened on Mother's Day uh, in 1985. He frequently talks about that event and makes sure that people remember it and correct context when he talks about that event we had Ramona Africa on the program in 2016 to talk about that event she's one of the sole survivors uh, of that event it should be uh, in the archives I'm so proud for so many reasons we had uh, Dr. Osder he is a white man suspected racist on the program he did the documentary film Let It Burn we went over in great detail the information on the bombing and we just read Mumia Abu-Jamal's book uh, live from death row where he has many articles where he talks about the move bombing where I thought I'm just I'm so glad that we gave much more information because it wasn't just that the surrounding 60 houses burned down it was exclusively black owned houses that burned down I try to say it that way every time and I think Mumia points that out as well it, it wasn't just these no count move coons and john africa that we did and sue africa oh my god how could i forget sue africa Woo! context of white supremacy we've been here 11 and a half years i've forgotten how much content sue africa white woman oh my lord go back in the archives sue africa who was also with us the summer of 2016 we did heavyweight work same summer that donald trump was doing heavyweight work March into November, but I was so thankful uh, that, man, just the cows exist and the archives are there. You can go back and get more information about Move because I felt like they could have included a lot more uh, in that report uh, in terms of why that event uh, happened, the use of the word terrorism, and even apology like Mr. Fuller I am not interested in apology at all how about we start with an accurate account 
uh, of what happens, correct terminology, act of racism, white supremacy. Mayor Wilson Good is a black male, by the way. I think Sue Africa called him a lot of names. Coon so, so she sounded just like uh, Joe Biden. She sounded exactly like Joe Biden. <laughs> he, Joe, you talk about a black person that ain't even black. You talking about a sellout coon? Got a white person sounding like that talking about any black person? Come on. Anyway, uh, yeah, the move situation in Philadelphia. Philadelphia is an important city in the system of white supremacy. But yeah, that is a, a major conflict. There's lots of video. If you, matter of fact, if you are missing, you still are at home and you got extra time and you don't want to read. Reading more important than watching television. Documentary film right there. Let it burn. Check it out, and then you can go find in the archives uh, when we had the filmmaker on the program. It was on PBS, so you might be able to watch it on PBS. You could probably even get it from the library if you can't find it online. Like they have the DVD version at the library and all of that. Anywho, yay cows. Um, they had. Let's see, make sure I didn't forget. Boom, boom, boom. I feel like there was one other report. I neglected, but I'll get to it down the road. We'll have time. Uh, Lots of losses uh, this year. Kobe Bryant. Greatly pained by that. I was Uh, Toronto. Lots of losses this year. Lots of folks been furloughed and reduced hours and lots of losses uh, this year. Little Richard, lots of losses this year. Dr. Layla Africa, still worst book ever but lots of losses this year one win still on the plantation but one win uh, my blender which I use every day my blender uh, broke um, probably because I use it every day just wear and tear I did not have uh, one of those you know super uh, high end as they call it $5,000 blenders that can clean the house and you know make orders on Amazon Prime where you're out of non-dairy milk and non-dairy creamer and everything else I just had a regular old blender and it broke uh, and I use my blender all the time like I do smoothies like every day uh, or you know generally like 5-6 days a week uh, sometimes twice a day if I have all my produce and such um, I'm plant-based and have been plant-based for over two years. A lot of uh, different recipes that I uh, try to experiment with. Uh, sometimes they require some food processing. Like a lot of times you're using uh, nuts as a substitute, uh, legumes, as they say, and you have to chop them pretty finely. So you have to put them in a processor of some sort. Blender will work. Um, just, you know, lots of things. You can make non-dairy milk. It's very useful. Uh, to have a blender. I'd say almost an essential kitchen appliance, particularly for plant-based eaters, uh, unless you're just going to do salads. And it can even be helped. Salad dressing. You can make salad dressing in the blender. Anyway, so my blender broke. And I thought, oh, I can just go to the grocery store, get a replacement blender. No big deal. I go to the grocery store, and all the blenders are sold out. (laughs) We didn't sell out of uh, toilet paper, or at least initially we did, but... After a few weeks, I said, you know, everything has calmed down. The grocery stores have been fine. We got hand sanitizer, toilet paper, blah, blah, blah. Tofu, we did sell out of. That can still be a little uh, spotty to get tofu and uh, nuts. I had a real struggle to get uh, raw cashews, raw almonds. Wow. Um, Blenders. I had been joking for a while. Like there must be some Richard Burr and them. They must have a secret uh, tincture 
for Rona immunity where you can make some kind of smoothie or concoction in the blender because all, and I mean all, like the cheapest, you know, $13 blender that you think will probably break, break in six weeks, all those were gone. The most expensive, 5000 all of them, everything, everything in between, they were all gone. Like, okay, no problem, no big deal. I'll wait, I'll be patient, you know. I'll, I'll appreciate the smoothie even more when I can get it again. So I wait, I go back in like three weeks, still no blenders. Lots of losses with the Rona. So I moped, I think, to a few listeners. My smoothie, and it was messing up my lasagna because there are other recipes that I like where I have to have a food processor, and so I couldn't make my oven lasagna. I couldn't make falafel, like, lots of losses in 2020 so I'm explaining this to a listener and oh a blender that's all you need a blender and I said well justice would be better but I mean in the meantime yes a blender let's get that Vitamix I did not have a Vitamix blender although I was very very familiar with them Uh, for folks who've never heard of it's it's a higher end uh, blender I think you can they start the basic model. I think they start at around $300, $350 U.S., generally speaking. Uh, many of the models are substantially higher than that, uh, like 100 200 300 Like what I said before, like they have models, literally the Bluetooth Connect. Bam, you can just go on your phone and boop, press blend, blend smoothie. Boop, or they even have where you can go on your phone and find newfangled recipes like oh you find a soup that you like bam 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 you throw all the rest uh, ingredients in close it just go on your phone bam blend and it does all the work to a preset sequence so you don't have to do anything it'll just stop when it's ready and I did say soup I did say soup the Vitamix can make soup I don't know if everybody else has, you know, blenders and wonderful kitchen gadgets in your house that can do that. But I mean, wow, a blender that can make soup. Wow. So I get the Vitamix. Like I said, I'm soup. I'm familiar with it. I didn't I had not made soup in a Vitamix before, but I knew they could do that. I had not seen it done before, but I had heard part of the aura of all of this about the Vitamix. The reason I'm going into detail about all of this is because I'd actually had a lot of experience with the Vitamix. I had a roommate who owned a Vitamix, so I lived in the same house with one for a long time. I've known this person for a long time and would visit this person, victim of white supremacy. So I'd be able to use it, you know, all the time. Eventually, I didn't even use it at first. Like, I remember the first time I saw it or even heard about it because I didn't even know what a Vitamix was, you know, until I could put an exact 2017 I didn't even know what a Vitamix was. Uh, he, this victim, gets a Vitamix, and I mean, he's ecstatic, excited, like jumping around. Vitamix coming, woo, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he gets it, and I see how much it costs. I'm like, oh my lord, I'm gonna make sure I never touch this. Like, wow. And in fact, I stopped and I told him. I said, in addition to making sure that I don't touch this, wow, I feel like you have a kitchen appliance that is worth more than my life. Pause for pause for Ahmad Arbery, or you can insert the name of a victim of white supremacy, the move victims, or you know any number of folks. So I said, I feel like you have you know this Vitamix is worth more than my life, and I had told this victim this before because he also had uh, one of those little dogs. I'm not a dog fan, but I had to babysit him, if you all recall. Um, he's a terrier, uh, a Yorkie terrier, one of those little dogs, but like 
$1,500 dog. And I told him the same thing then, like you have this dog that's worth more than my life for sure. Uh, and then you have now this blender that's worth more than my life. Like, wow. Uh, and so he said, that's crazy talk. What are you talking about? And it's just a blender. And, you know, you could make a blender if you wanted to and blah, 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 and all this other stuff. Man, in the system of racism, white supremacy, I know how racists feel about that. Matter of fact, they traded Frederick Douglass for a barrel of molasses. I said, if anything, if I got this blender, Negro, where did you get that Vitamix from? Have you been out? He was looting mailboxes and stealing Vitamixes. Anyway, so I remember this distinctly. And in fact, so that was 2017, the first time that I told him, you have an appliance and a canine worth more than my life. So fast forward like... I'm going to say a year this victim of white supremacy who is a non-black non-white male which probably explains how he got access to a Vitamix and knew all about it and all the rest of it but that's another program uh, which also was in the archives uh, like literally with him specifically talking about the fact that he is not black and thus would have access to a Vitamix much easier anyway so move forward like a year we'll say 2018 so it's this victim non-white non-black a black female and myself so we're talking about the Vitamix again and he's probably going to use it to make a smoothie he loves the Vitamix or some concoction in it and uh, even after a year you would think depreciation and all that no you still got a kitchen appliance that is worth more than my life and so I said that it's like ah that's crazy talk stop saying that that's you know stop saying that and I said it, and she said the same thing. She said, I agree. I don't want to touch it either. Like, man, I feel like I would get arrested or something. <laughs> I broke it, which is what I had said originally. Like, I feel like I would get tased or accused of stealing it. Uh, it's like, oh, my Lord. Like, that is crazy. It's just a blender. It's just a blender that can make soup. Uh, so eventually, I do start to use uh, the blender cautiously, and it does make really incredible smoothies. That was really the only thing I wanted my blender for was to make uh, smoothies and then a little bit of food processing so I could do my oven lasagna, a few other little treats. But listener, long time listener, investor, Vitamix, whammo, have fun, Gus. Uh, She also has a Vitamix, so she knows all the wonder and joy of having Vitamixes. Apparently, we do have a number of cows listeners who also know the joy of the Vitamix. So I get my Vitamix this past uh, Thursday. I've had it two days. Wow. I have been a regular uh, blending fool. I've been posting pictures online. I made plant-based frosty, uh, sugarless plant-based frosty. I made uh, sugarless plant-based strawberry ice cream. I made cheeseless broccoli cheddar soup that was amazing like I literally would take a spoonful of the soup and have to stop and do like the plantation dance a little bit and then I'd sit down and eat one more spoonful and stand up and like it was amazing oh amazing even on day two after being refrigerated just heat and it was still amazing better than anything you could buy in the store and it was all like literally you can just put it in the blender and it will (laughs) amazing Anywho, uh, you don't have to spend all that to get a blender like you can get a regular. I had a blender that cost a lot less and enjoyed it, had lots of great smoothies, 
process lots of things that can be really helpful in your transition. But if you, you know, have enough nickels, maybe race soldiers have allowed you to have a great job. Some people said they've come up during the Rona, got lots of double time and all the rest, got their stimulus check and all that. Vitamix can be a great investment, like especially if you're trying to transition to plant based smoothies. That's such an easy way to get raw produce, uh, fruits and veggies in and other fruits and vegetables. Like I said, you can make soup, that broccoli cheddar soup that I had all fruits and veggies. It was totally cheeseless, not even the non-dairy cheese options. No cheese at all. I have the pictures of it on uh, posted on my Facebook and everything like, wow, just totally stunned. I've used it every day and, you know, try to pick out different recipes and what have you. But that that was the retreat that we had a we didn't have a Vitamix, but we had a really good blender uh, in Florida. That's why I said you can get a really good blender and still do lots of great things. And we had smoothies. We used it for food processing. We had uh, chickpea uh, egg salad that was great. We had that uh, like as our little to go uh, lunch bags uh, for the last day. But it can be super helpful in transitioning uh, to being plant based and eating better foods. And especially if you have like what they call a sweet tooth. You can make smoothies and they'll be really sweet and they'll have no sugar in them at all. And it can really, uh, I think if you are craving something sweet, it will totally satisfy. And like I said, strawberry ice cream, I have foot. It was creamy thick. You know how they turn the bowl or the cup upside down to show how thick it is. Boop. Did that. You turn it upside down. Super thick, super creamy um i'm not sure if the ice cream would fool someone because it's like they put so much sugar and all those chemicals and everything like the sugar is it can be overpowering if you're accustomed to that a lot and it's addictive that i do agree with that in dr africa but that cheeseless cheddar broccoli soup i would be willing to wager a substantial amount of money that you could fool even some cheese lovers with that soup it is that delicious Woo. anyway all of that. Uh, I did email to thank a uh, super generous investor once I got my cool little Vitamix uh, and showed you know pictures of all the wonderful little items that I got. Uh, and she, uh, let's see, I was going to even include, because she had really great commentary just about black self-respect. Uh, and yes, being able to just feel like, we're, there it is. Yes, I am going to make sure I get that in. Because I said, I told her, I almost called her a name when I saw the price for the Vitamix. Like, whoa, I am not sure the cows is worth a Vitamix. At least not this one. Maybe one of the other models. Uh, she wrote, of course, the cows is worth getting a Vitamix. This is one is the one time I feel I have truly contributed to a good cause. Your health does matter. You say that about 8,000 times. Your health does matter and is worthy of such things. That's the thing. We are too conditioned into thinking we don't deserve to have nice things. You are and continue to be a service uh, and have maintained consistency. That's my word. I say consistently all the time. Uh, But man, your health is so important. Invest in your head. If anything about this whole confusion and nonsense with uh, the COVID-19 situation, your health is so important. That was the driving motivation with the cows retreats. Your health has to be a critical component 
of counter-racism. This system is designed to make sure that we are in really poor health. You have to have a huge amount of vitality in order to replace white supremacy with justice. If you got to stop and go check your insulin level and take your shot and got cataracts and high blood pressure and hypertension, I really don't think you're going to be able to vanquish racist man and racist woman because they got their Vitamixes on lock. KO by the bushel and ready to roll. Invest in your health. Man, loving my Vitamix. It is great looking at soup number two. Uh, Let's see. Last thing I'll get in and we will get to the callers. Words are super important. This is the one broadcast where I request that we not use uh, metaphors. Man, the wording when they did that segment and they were talking about looking at who is dying from COVID-19 and they were taught the same thing that they've been saying before about which areas it's impacting and blah, blah, blah. Uh, And so they have Jarvis Chin, non-white male at Harvard, epidemiologist, they say. Dr. Chen says it's very clear for April that there are very large increases in excess mortality, but we're seeing some hints in the data that surge in mortality. They spelled the word correctly might have started earlier in the less disadvantaged. I said, what the hell are you talking about? The less disadvantaged. I think that's a devil negative, which they do uh, suggest not doing. Do you mean white people who were able to go out and travel and do all their globe trotting? And they were in Crete and Cyprus and Spain and Italy and all these other places. And then they brought all their cooties back here and then gave it to black people who did not have the ability to travel and other non-white. That's what. Okay, Less disadvantaged. Confusion is lethal. When we talk about racism, white supremacy, that's like what we end up getting a lot of the times. That sort of total nonsense where we are not speaking directly to the problem. Whites. For this program, if we could not use metaphors, analogies, similes, frequently we get race soldiers. Now, this is a victim, but frequently we get race soldiers. They will dump those metaphors and similes and analogies in there. And we just end up with a lot of confusion. That is master deceiver work. Victims, Dr. Chen, myself also, we've been exposed to this for a long time. Frequently, you are harmed for speaking honestly, accurately about white supremacy racism. So we end up pussyfooting or using metaphors and analogies. Sometimes we just don't have logic to accurately articulate our thoughts. And so we'll substitute some sort of metaphor for this broadcast. If we could be mindful of our word usage, I will prompt about the metaphors. These are our means of communicating ideas and thoughts to solve the problem we should be constantly refining our words number is 605-313-5164 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate Uh, first few folks who dialed in, if you have comments to share, uh, lines should be open. Proceed. 
Hey Gus, how you doing? Caller from out of New Jersey. Um, I just wanted to say, man, I'm, I'm definitely happy uh, that you know someone invested, you know, in a, uh, equipment, you know, that can, uh, you know, better your better your food experience. So um, that was that's that's definitely great, and um, you know, you definitely are an asset. <laughs> Any chance I get, I spread the word um, about the cows. Um, yeah, so um, I don't know if you guys went over this, but, uh, you know, in New York City, um, it, it says um, black, 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 and, black and brown New Yorkers make up 90% of the coronavirus arrest. If, um, if, if that was covered, you know, um, <laughs> that was interesting. Um, with the report, of uh the militia groups um again you know um, white people being disingenuous and um by saying that um they don't think it's about racism these gatherings at the same time saying that there are groups aligned with these protesters that do that are white supremacist uh, groups um, you say that at the same time that you can say that, you know, during the time of the Black Panthers, um, you know, same action, um, armed protest, um, there's, you know, there, there's no way um, that, well, you know, there is a way, but from my understanding, the Black Panthers were not trying to um, cause any violence to, um, you know, anybody in the California state legislature. So you, you, you can make that connection. And you can you can call out the contradictions, but you can still say um, there is no racism. Um, you had a, a, a group, Nevada, Clyde Bundy. <laughs> you know, when you say it's not about racism, it started about cows grazing on land that, he didn't own, um, but some way, somehow, that conversation uh, started, and he, it went from cows grazing, grazing on on grass that wasn't his, to you know, let's talk about the Negroes and the projects and how they were well off during slavery. So, um, I I do not believe that these protests are. Um, are void of racism. I think racism is at the core. Um, Joe Biden. <laughs> um, I think that um, and other callers can uh, call in after this. We're definitely going to have to be patient with other victims when we discuss this up-and-coming election because, um, again, I believe the people most confused about racism are black people. Um, when black people can look at that, and I think it's a sign of black self-respect to call out Joe Biden, um, you know, when you get on these talk shows and, and um, such as the Breakfast Club, and you know, you know, you begin to talk. Um, I don't know if this is a metaphor, but you begin to talk in jive, you know, when it comes to speaking to a black audience, and don't let this be dismissed 
when Joe Biden made that comment, that was in response to Charlemagne, the God, saying, you know, come back to the show. Um, um, we have more questions, you know, and, and you know, because it's, it's, you know, we, we, we have a lot of time between now and um, November. So come back. We have some more questions. And he became irritated. What, what do you mean you have more questions? If you don't want to vote for me, you're not black. Um, that was just very disres- disrespectful. And, um, you know, and again, my code for having black self-respect is I'm not voting for him. I'm not voting for Trump. I'm not voting for him. You know, I may vote down ballot, but again, when I'm having discourse with other victims, I make it my business to say, this is what I'm doing. I'm not telling you what to do. If you think that Donald Trump is the most evil, vile racist on the planet, and you think that Joe Biden is the solution, if that's your call, vote for him. I'm not shaming black people um, to vote. I'm not shaming black people into not voting. But one thing I want black people to understand when we make these statements about Donald Trump in comparison to Joe Biden, he was friends with some of the most um, um, vicious um, segregationists during the Jim Crow era. You know, like, so do you need to say more? During, During a time where reports saying that crime was going down, he was pushing for a crime bill. And if I'm not mistaken, I think that this crime bill may have been in 94, but within 94, within that, that 94, 96, if I'm not mistaken, there was something called the Million Man March where black society, the black collective put on display that during that time, we were serious about trying to solve our problems. And that was on full display with the Million Man March, where um, reports of a million black men of all ages met in Washington, D.C. to say that enough, or the violence, enough, of the single broken home. We are here to profess that we want change. During that time, you can look out of the Capitol window, you were pushing for a crime bill to mass incarcerate a uh, population of people who have clearly, you know, been, been disenfranchised. You know, so that lets, that tells you everything you need to know about this man. But again, that's my level of understanding and my code. I am not arguing with black people who want to vote for Joe Biden, who don't want to vote for Joe Biden, I mean, who, who, who wants to vote for Donald Trump or who don't want to vote for who don't want to vote at all. So I just want to ask everybody else, what is your code going to be when you confront um, other victims that is um, in favor of voting for Joe Biden or may shame you and say things like, well, even if you don't vote for Joe Biden, you're inadvertently throwing your vote, giving your vote to Donald Trump. I'll close with that. 
Much obliged caller in New Jersey. Uh, good question for folks. It is uh, what they call election season. Um, how do you deal with other victims of racism, black people specifically? Uh, they do a lot of that uh, vote shaming, I'll call it, where, you know, it's it's I told you they'll blame. It's your fault. You know, they did that in 2006. It's your fault. You didn't you came out and voted in droves for that. No good coon Obama. And you didn't want to come out and vote for Hillary Clinton. You just get behind other niggers. And, you know, you're not about just supporting quality candidates. And, you know, you or you voted for Trump or you didn't vote at all. You're just lazy and sat at home and moped about Obama and didn't vote at all. And that's just like a vote for Trump. And they, you know, they will do a lot of that type of thing uh, to try to, what what I just said, vote shame you uh, about, you know, you're supposed to come out and support the democratic candidate. Um, Social distancing was my first thought. Like, Hey, we're not supposed to be having these type of frivolous dialogues. Let's make sure we have appropriate distance. And, you know, we might have to vote by mail, like much less sit around and, you know, spit on each other and get heated about who's voting or not voting uh with all of this i would that would probably be a very short conversation just exactly as you said like i would be super patient i don't know how much i would listen like again I, social distancing uh like oh okay great you're gonna vote for well i'm gonna probably if i see that this is a person who looks like they're gonna do some vote chaining or try to give a, give me a lecture that you know rosa parks went out and sacrificed and dr king died so that, you know yeah, i've heard all that okay uh well, that's great. It's a lot of information. And with so much going on, I'm going to have to give it some thought. And then uh, I'll make a decision by November and leave it at that. And then I would be keeping it pushing. Either I'd be asking another question or just move it on. I wouldn't even engage in a big dialogue with somebody where I, I get a sense that that's where it's going. Like, oh, yeah, social distancing. Got to put my mask on and, and get back to it. I'll talk at you soon. And, you know, good luck. I, four more years. I'd probably be whispering that to myself for four more years. <laughs> let's see but other folks if you have a code for how you deal uh with the vote shaming if you're around uh anybody really uh white people or non-white people and they try to you know go you gotta vote it's your civic duty you know we we went through all this down here in florida and restoring felons rights and everything you gotta get out and vote you got no excuse what's your code for dealing with all that because you know there probably will be some of that coming at least if we're able to get outside by november uh, let's see. Uh, number 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. I have had a good bit of trouble dialing in to the program uh, for the past few days, just making sure that's included. I know a number of other folks have said they've had problems intermittently as well, uh, but it's been that way for me for some time now. Uh, I also did want to make sure I got in really quick before I get uh, some of the other folks who had a hand up. Uh, the segment on the former White House butler, Wilson German, he passed away. You know, that's nothing. Loss of life is uh, tragic. Just make sure I get that acknowledged. Uh, but that segment uh, where talked about his his life as a slave that's why uh that is what they described his life as a slave i don't use the term enslave uh the system of white supremacy is slavery if i'm a slave call me a slave gusty renegade victim of white supremacy slave uh but that's what it, it described to me uh that's why i included that segment uh where minister farrakhan was talking about the white house but like it just it was so tacky like just he lived to to serve white people and 
he was just so proud to be able to go in and clean and serve and wanted us to emulate the way that they served their food and organized their silverware I mean why even the Welsing moment where they talked about they said they had a uh, white chocolate uh, configuration of the White House at the Christmas party uh, I thought the Welsing moment, Welsing moment, but yeah, I just, it just was so tacky. It, it wasn't even just like, couldn't just be an appreciation. It was just, you know, how he devoted his entire life force, life energy to literally the white house, the house of white supremacy. Uh, but the passing of uh, Wilson German tragic, the segment was tacky. Uh, other folks who dialed in if you have comments uh, thoughts to share star six one uh, if you have an idea or two uh, folks are spectating a little bit we're supposed to be supposed to be in Toronto this weekend losses losses Uh, while folks are spectating I forgot so much uh, we will be here on Tuesday Uh, our guest for the program Uh, on Tuesday he authored the book Know Your Price Uh, Dr. Perry that's his name Black Male Victim of Racism Uh, he has the audio segment I've been playing it the uh, past few weeks Uh, the segment uh, there's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism won't fix that's the quote Uh, but his book just came out Know Your Price which is all about white supremacy racism uh, and how white people have uh, deliberately Uh, not developed, underdeveloped uh, areas where black people reside uh, and the ramifications uh, on all areas of people activity, including health, uh, because they deliberately choose to disinvest in areas where black people are and make it so that they don't have, you know, nice, healthy places where you can go get food and exercise and all the rest of it uh, but he'll be with us this coming Tuesday 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific uh, we will talk about uh, his book uh, Know Your Price uh, we'll talk about that a tad and then we'll also uh, discuss uh, the COVID-19 uh, situation uh, because he connects that to his book uh, and saying that the reason that black people are not in good health is because of white supremacy racism that erodes our economic health our physical biological health our emotional health and you can just go on our nutritional health you can just go on all areas of people activity but he'll be here on tuesday um may 26th may 26th 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific looking forward on our counter racist grind for the month of may uh while folks are spectating if folks are just going to hang out and spectate then we will, you know, wrap things up early. But uh, while folks are spectating, I did want to also make sure that I mentioned I was not exactly excited or enthused about the prospect of doing a lot of content on the coronavirus. Like, that was not my intention. Uh, I was looking to be more explicitly focused on white supremacy racism but all things end up being connected to that one uh, and then just in an effort to follow logic with there being so much confusion uh, about what is happening and trying to figure out uh, the best way best decisions best choices 
uh, to make. Uh, it, you know, seemed like a constructive investment of time and energy to have more content, uh, trying to figure out what's happening content where we're talking to people in different parts of the world and talking to some people who are qualified, uh, health professionals and the like. So hopefully that has been of some value. Uh, but that was really not my intention, uh, at all coming into the spring of 2020, but this, uh, has just been uh, the confusion around this incident. And then there've been so many di- direct uh, reports relating to white supremacy, racism that it necessitated uh, more inquiry. So yeah, hopefully that has been of some constructive value to folks uh, as we try to move through all this as best we can. But yeah, that was really not what I wanted to focus time and energy on for April, May, spring, 2020. Uh, let's see. Other folks, folks, uh, let's see. Retired firefighter. Do you have commentary? Should be with us, sir. Greetings, Gus. Greetings to uh, the callers and the listeners. I kind of like was deterred uh, by a uh, phone call from a uh, personal associate uh, that I talked to as opposed to the show called right as you were coming on after you gave the, uh, like the hour report. Uh, but, uh, he, uh, I might as well mention it on the program. He, uh, informed me that, uh, another college teammate, uh, well, he actually died or should we say passed, uh, this person, uh, I don't know exactly when, but, uh, the report of his passing, uh, took place within about maybe two hours ago. Uh, and I haven't been on Facebook to, uh, see it, uh, post it, but, uh, uh, he is, he resides in New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but I—I just put it this way: I wouldn't be surprised if it was had something to do with Kenora's virus, uh, the Kenora's virus, uh, and uh, you know, just to describe, you know, very nice person, uh, and and I just mentioned about teammate because just to give some kind of identification, but he was much more than that, also. Uh, very, very nice person, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, just very, you know, very nice person all around. He would, he would have been probably the, the largest person that you ever had met. He was 6'11", 6'11", uh, about, uh, at that time, back when we were in college, he was somewhere around 320, something like that. Uh, but, uh. You know, somebody that looked intimidating, but he was very, very, very nice, very nice guy. And uh, he, I don't know if he went to the hospital for some of the conditions that he did have that I knew about. But, uh, you know, when you go there at this particular date and time, uh, there's a complication of the Kenora's virus that also that makes you vulnerable too. So it, that may have been also uh, a part of uh, his uh, 
his uh, demise. Also, I can't confirm that yet, but uh, it, it might be that type of situation with him also. But anyway, that's 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 good. That's the only thing I can think about right now as far as because if he was such a very uh, important person to me. I can't think of anything right now. But uh, thanks anyway for everybody for listening. Uh, much obliged, retired firefighter, and uh, man, uh, wow, tremendous uh, condolences uh, from myself and the cows uh, listeners for your loss. If I may ask, how old uh, was this victim? He was in and around. He's, he's my age. He's something like sixty-two, okay. something like that. Okay. If anything, if anything, he, he may be older, sixty, sixty-three. Something like that, but uh, he's no older than that. Six two, six three years old. At least six eleven. At least six foot eleven. And at the time when we were playing together, he was three twenty six. You know, and uh, if you saw him, he you would have to say that this is the this is the largest person combination of height and weight that I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> you know, and uh, of course when you in your 60s, that would be very compli- complicated as far as health-wise. It could be anyway. You know, and uh, I do know he was having some uh, medical problems. He was still active on Facebook and everything like that, but uh, he did have some medical problems. So, and, and, and you know, as far as how I've been articulating, those are some of the ingredients that actually makes your situation real tougher when you, when under this pandemic that goes around, you know, what do they call it? Pre preconditioned, uh, mm-hmm. uh, issues and problems, you know, something like that. And he definitely had that. Mm. So I just don't, I just can't confirm on whether or not, uh, the Canoris virus added on to that complicated situation. I don't know for sure. I, I would get the information probably within the next 48 hours on that. But, uh, Uh, again, my condolences, um, a lot of black people, uh, on this planet, males and females end up leaving way too early and 62, 63, all Mm -hmm. of that is way too early. Um, Andre Harrell, a music mogul just passed away. I think he was 59. I mean, man, that, and again, that's why I said, health that the whole spirit of the counter racist yoga retreats retired firefighter was with us in Florida. Like that's the whole reason, like that is so critical uh, to really make health and taking care of ourselves. That has got to be a critical component of white supremacy, racism, because they do not intend the system of white supremacy is designed. You're not going to end up like a Neely Fuller junior and think you're going to be sitting around here with all of your faculties talking logic right now <laughs> that is not going to happen mm-hmm. we are trying to get you out of here and to have you so that you can't do that imagine mr fuller trying to do all that and he wait a minute i gotta go do my my insulin i got my diabetes and my heart i mean imagine if that had been him you gotta that has gotta be crucial and they have planned if you do not have a plan a counter-racist plan to say i'm gonna do my best from a very weak position i might not be able to afford a vitamix 
but I am not going to be eating Cheetos every day. Like I'm going to do the best that I can to try to eat well, get some exercise in retired firefighter even said under quarantine conditions, they closed the school trying to get my offspring. Let's go out to the track. Gets a, oh man, they close it. We got a sidewalk right here. We can get in a few laps right here. What you can. And, and we did it today. <laughs> every other day. And, and that was the, 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 every other day was today. We, we, uh, get our little sprint routine uh, out in front. The only thing we had to do was watch out for the cars, <laughs> that they'd be rounding the corner. Get it done. Got to get it done. Mm. Congestive heart failure. That's what they're reporting that Andre Harrell died from. I didn't say it had anything to do with uh, the coronavirus last week or anything. I'm just online. That's what they're reporting, that it was congestive heart failure, which I think is also a comorbidity for COVID-19. And I think that would be related to white supremacy racism because a whole lot of uh, black John Henryism, you can just pile up the literature and programs that we've done on that. Uh, But being stressed because you're being terrorized and abused, you got white people trying to run you down in the streets and all the rest of it uh, can contribute to all of this, the diabetes, the overeating and all the rest of it. Not to mention, they make sure you don't have a whole foods in your area. They make sure you got a church's chicken or KFC or some nonsense. Uh, and they make sure you're not going to get that Vitamix. Uh, but man, uh, again, condolences from myself and uh, Cal's listeners. And uh, from these type of tragedies, if anything, Uh, We can take these as, you know, just tragic reminders like, man, that the system of white supremacy, one of the greatest motivations for us to solve this problem with a sense of urgency, like right now, (laughs) 62 is a disgrace. 59 is a disgrace. Even Dr. Welsing at 82 is a disgrace. Now, they don't intend for you to get there either, but that's the way we should be thinking. Like, and not, I'm here at 62 and I'm feeble and I got to take 80 pills a day and I'm on a cane and a walker and I can't even go around the grocery store to get my groceries because uh, I'm here and I'm great. You know, if, and if I have to, you know, do a little jog to get away from some race soldiers, I got it. I got it. I'm good. Like, that's the way that we want to be thinking that I'm going to try to be here to, to solve this problem. We're going to need vitality to solve this problem. Man, uh, number again, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, if folks have uh, a code for, uh, what was it, voting? Yes, if you have your code together for how you deal with uh, voters or being shamed, that was it, vote shamed vote shamed uh, that someone finds out that you're not going to vote for Biden or you're not going to vote at all uh, how do you deal with that I guess deal- and dealing with it in a constructive manner like not just you call them names and you know that sort of thing but if you have a code for how you deal with being vote shamed that would be good to hear as well uh, other folks dialed in uh, if you have commentary thoughts to share lines should be open proceed While we uh, give folks a moment, again, Andre Perry will be here on Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, Know Your Price, the full title, Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property 
in America's black cities. Black property. What is that? That's like a oxymoron or something. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward. We'll talk about, hmm, this is the blurb. Let's see. It says the deliberate devaluation of blacks and their communities has had a very real far reaching and negative economic and social effect. An enduring white supremacist myth claims brutal conditions in black communities are mainly the results of black people's collective choices and moral failings. Okay. And then he goes on to talk about how it's deliberate white supremacy racism that is responsible for all of this. That's what we'll be talking about on Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. This is a uh, non-white male, black male author uh, who will be on the program Tuesday. So looking forward and a brand new book like it just came out this month, like fresh off the presses, uh, as they say. Uh, The caller mentioned previously, just making sure I didn't forget uh, the arrests in New York. Uh, we talked about that last week. I uh, played the report from Borough President uh, Eric Adams. Uh, he's a black male and former uh, NYPD officer. Uh, and he talked about the arrests and he did a, a press conference. Uh, I think he still has some sort of rapport with NYPD. Uh, but he talked about that and the report uh, or his report. And then I also saw a report in the New York Times. Uh, I believe it was like 90% of the arrests were black people. This is another one was it it wasn't black and brown people. It was like 90%. Now this wasn't 5,000 arrests. I think a few people pointed that out. And I think I said this last week myself that I think it was like a hundred arrests, let's say. And it, I think it was less than that even, but we'll say it was a hundred arrests that we're talking about, which is one arrest is too many, but we're not talking about like thousands of people. But uh, but it was like 90%. If we're saying just for the sake right now, then I can look at the article to get the exact figure. But I think it was like if it was 100 arrests, 95 of them were black people. So, I mean, it was like deliberate targeting of black people for the limited number of summonses that were issued uh, in New York City for uh, violations of social distancing or something, not wearing a mask, mouthing off that type of thing. Uh, but yes, we did talk about that last week. I have not heard of that type of thing in, that's the only place that I've heard that. Not that I'm saying it hasn't in Brazil. I'll take that back. I guess that's the other, uh, other location where black people, we talked about that, but I'm not aware of other locations in the United States where black people specifically have been getting, um, fined, ticketed, harassed, um, in like a wide where it's more it's not just like a one isolated incident i'm not aware new york city thus far is the only spot i know of that and brazil we did talk about that with marquise trevay this past week let's see uh folks still spectating again we will kick back i can go play with my vitamix if folks are just Hey, hey gus um this is caller from New Jersey, if I can add while people get their thoughts together. Yes, sir. Um, that was initially the question that I asked the doctor. Um, I, I, his name escapes me this week, the guest uh, for earlier today. Um, uh, is it Dr. Cambon? Is it... From this week you're talking about? Doctor, yeah, this week. Dr. Simi? Yeah, this... Dr. Peter Simi? Uh, no, um, not doctor. Um, Mr. Trevay? He was on uh, from this week. Dr. Rasayan, he was on. Rasayan. Rasayan, yes. That was initially what I was 
asking him, I said, do, do, do you think that we need to do away with the, 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 the black and the brown ad on when we're talking about black people? You know, because I think it just kind of like really like diminishes who's really being targeted. You know, when we have these conversations, it's, it's like, you know, you can't really, um, you really can't talk about black issues without adding black and brown, people of color, minorities. You know, so that's what I, that was initially what, um, what I was basically um, alluding to when I asked him that question, do we need to change um, that language when we're trying to um, present a grievance that's affecting us? Do we have to add the brown at the end of black when we're talking about issues that specifically affect uh, black people? You know, so that was that was another thing. And um, w- one more thing that if I could add, and I just, you know, was speaking about, uh, I, you said something that, that brought back um, um, an incident that happened while I was exercising in the park. And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't confrontational with another black male, and there was trash around the workout area, and he proceeded to pick up the trash. And then he says, um, you know, we got to do a better job. You know, if, if people come to this park, if police come to this park, other people come in this park, they won't mistreat us if we would clean up after ourselves. And I just, you know, it, it, you know, it, 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 it kind of bothered me, you know, because as I'm working out, it, it wasn't that much trash. It was maybe, you know, a plastic bottle in a plastic bag. We picked it up and see to throw it in the trash. So, you know, I asked him, I said, um, do, do you believe that, you know, we're being mistreated because there's trash on the ground? I, ha- I have no problem with people, you know, um, um, keeping the environment which they live clean. But to say that the reason why, you know, the police would target us is because there's trash on the ground. And if, if I'm looking around, Everybody is doing something constructive right now, and we're exercising. So why would a piece of trash on the ground um, provoke harassment for law enforcement? So, you know, that was just an encounter that I had um, this week, you know. So I didn't argue with him. I just, you know, I, you know I, I, I listened to his response. And, you know, I just let him know. I said, yeah, okay, I, I understand. I don't disagree with you know, clean, people cleaning up after themselves. But, however, um, I still don't agree that the reason why we're being mistreated because there's trash up there. So that was just um, real interesting. And when you spoke about, you know, there's not a problem that we face that racism won't solve. So, yeah. Much obliged, uh, caller in New Jersey. Again, patience with victims of racism. Uh, definitely applaud that working to not argue uh, squabble and what have you with other victims. I work on that skill myself. Um, I do think um, that's a great question. You know, do you think they're mistreating us because there's rubbish on the ground? Like we're in New Jersey. So we have a lead problem with the water in a predominantly black city because there's trash on the ground. 
the black residents in Flint have poisoned water because there's trash on the ground? All right. Are there neighborhoods where white people litter? And if so, do the police terrorize them in the same manner? Just, you know, lots of questions. Although, I don't, that would probably be another one where I might be thinking social distancing, social distancing. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, we're, we're supposed to be six feet apart. Let me get my, let me get my mask on. Uh, just to pull up the report, uh, as I said, I just arbitrarily picked 100, but I knew it was substantially lower than that. So the New York Times report from May 7, uh, again, we talked about this last week on the compensatory call-in for May 16th. Uh, this is uh, scrutiny of social distance policing as 35 of 40 arrested are black. That is the title of the New York Times report, May 7. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole article. I'm just scrolling down. So you heard what the title is. 45, excuse me, 35 of 40 arrested are black. Scrolling down, tensions are increasingly flaring in black and Hispanic neighborhoods over officers' enforcement of social distancing rules, leading some prominent elected officials to charge that the New York Police Department is engaging in a racist double standard as it struggles to shift to a public health role in the coronavirus crisis the arrests of black and Hispanic residents, several of them filmed and posted online, occurred on the same balmy days that other photographs circulated showing police officers handing out masks to mostly white visitors at parks in Lower Manhattan, Williamsburg, and Long Island City. Video captured crowds of sunbathers, Welsing moment, big Welsing moment, risk the Rona to go out and get a tan. Woo. Many without masks, sitting close together at a park on Manhattan Pier uninterrupted by the police. On Thursday night, Brooklyn District Attorney's Office became the first prosecutor in the city to release statistics on social distancing enforcement. In the borough, the police arrested 40 people for social distancing violations from March 17 through May 4th, the district's attorney's office said. Of those arrested, 35 were black, 4 were Hispanic, and 1 was white. I'm going to Stop. Oh, wait a minute. More than a third of the arrests were made in the predominantly black neighborhood of Brownsville. No arrests were made in the more white Brooklyn neighborhood of Park Slope. And I'll stop there. And Mayor Bill de Blasio came out to talk a whole lot. Cowbell right there. I'm sure he had his son out with his afro and all that good stuff. Um, yes, but we did talk about this last week. Like I said, I've not heard of this in any other places. It might be because they have not released the st- uh, statistics on the violations and or the police have been too occupied having to uh, maintain order at protest events. So yeah, I don't, I don't know, but this is the only place that I know of thus far. And again, 35 of 40 arrested black social distancing. Uh, Let's see other folks who dialed in with a hand up Uh, Henry in Chicago uh, should be with us. If you have commentary. Can I be here? Yes, sir. All right, uh, greetings, Gus, and uh, greetings to all the callers and listeners. Um, the, uh, I guess, the white militias at these protests. Uh, you had you had one recording uh, uh, talking about the white protest in Michigan, armed white militias. Uh, that is actually no no coincidence. Uh, it is probably no surprise, and I would not be surprised if one of these white militias in one of these states at these protests decide they want to, you know, start killing up folks. Um, 
I'm just, you know, I, I hate to see that, but I just got a feeling it's going to happen because uh, throughout this country's history, uh, there have been white militias that have tried to take over states. Uh, we're talking about Louisiana, 1886, uh, uh White militias tried to take over Louisiana government during their uh, constitutional convention. Uh, you're talking about the uh, South Carolina 1870, where the Klan actually did take over the government uh, in uh, in South Carolina, and the federal government had to come in and, and stop that. So it's it's probably going to be no surprise uh, uh, that one of these protests is going to turn out violent. And white people are just going to be shooting all over the place, uh, attempting to take over, you know, whatever government is, you know, taking away their rights because of this uh, pandemic. Um, Calling New Jersey, uh, I, you know, I'm on the same level as him. I have uh, people that I know who support Joe Biden, you know, but, you know, it is what it is. You know, they're they're victims, you know, just like I am. So. Um, it will be no, uh, it would be no avail to call them coons or whatever, or sheep or whatever, to prevent them from, you know, voting for a racist. I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the two primary candidates are racist anyway. So, um, the one thing I've always said that uh, one guarantee is in November uh, a racist will be president. Uh, and speaking of which, I. In a regular election, uh, I do feel that Trump, you know, will win. But I just don't think that this election is going to be regular. Uh, what I'm saying is that either what's going to happen is because of this pandemic or because of what's going on, uh, I got a feeling that the, the elections will probably be suspended and then Trump will just, you know, win by default. Uh or either the, the small chance that, you know, just say Biden wins, but Trump is not going to leave office. And then you have, you know, political chaos and, you know, who knows? I, and I hate to see this, but, you know, maybe another civil war coming to this country. And I'm not saying this, you know, to, to say that I want to be right, because unfortunately, if a civil war does come, um, now white black people will probably you know, be the victims. We'll probably get more people killed uh, in a war like that uh, than the coronavirus. So uh, I'm hoping that doesn't happen. But I just don't feel that the election is going to go down the way we think it's going to go down. Like I said, in a regular election, yes, I feel Trump is going to win easily. But I just don't feel like this election is going to be regular. And dealing with a, uh, you know, with the same thing with dealing with uh, people who, you know, uh, non-white black people who are voting for Joe Biden. Uh, Also dealing with a family member who is a uh, quote-unquote COVID truther, uh, doesn't believe that the virus is real type of thing. Um, And it's unfortunate because, you know, we have have a lot of uh, people in our family and friend circles who work in the medical field, uh, doctors and nurses, including my wife who works in a hospital. Now, I, I did I did say that, you know, her hospital is skewing numbers a little bit, but at the same time, her hospital had so many bodies in their morgue that they could, that they had to rent out a facility uh, that was nearby a, 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 
uh, a freezing facility to to uh, store the bodies that were you know being left in the hospital of people that were dying. So you know the question I asked them is like, so if COVID's not killing them. What is that? Because of the years that my wife worked in that hospital, she's never seen the morgue overflow with bodies like that. So um, dealing with that, uh, I, you know, it, it, that's a more complicated issue because you know you want you want your you want your friends and families to be safe uh, in this time. You know, I'm taking the, me and my family we're taking all precautions, uh, but you know, with this one, it's kind of like you know difficult and. It's unfortunate because people I know uh, who start off like this and change their minds, uh, either they've been affected with the virus, uh, they know somebody who's been affected with the virus, or somebody they know and love close to them dies from the virus. And it's unfortunate people have to change their minds when a situation like that happens. So, uh, But uh, that's all I have on my mind. Much obliged, uh, Henry in Chicago. Uh, appreciate the updates uh, as well. Having uh, a wife, I was going to say, knowing someone, having a wife uh, who's in the a medical professional uh, who's kind of seeing things uh, directly, daily, uh, and seeing what's happening. Um, the people, it's I have been greatly frustrated. That's part of the reason that we have devoted more programming to. Uh, discussing, investigating, trying to find logic in the whole coronavirus crisis uh, because it has been frustrating. Uh, the the label they're using Corona truthers, uh, the different groups who do not think this is real. Uh, we shouldn't be taking it serious. All of that. Uh, it has been frustrating. Uh, the people that are most to blame. That's why I've been playing some of those reports where they're talking about all of this disinformation. Uh, is white people uh the protests and it's in so many different forms the protests the president uh that would be president trump boris johnson uh bolsonaro in brazil uh it's been so many white people uh who have been giving out incorrect information misleading information that's why we started with that segment on senator burr senator united states senator burr uh where he's telling the public it's no big deal. And then he's going and telling these powerful white people, man, sell all your stocks. It's going to be good. Do you have hand sanitizer? <laughs> I mean, so white people are most to blame when you had, they said that in the report, when you have an environment where it's confusion, where it's not precise in terms of, you know, what the information is, what we're supposed to be doing, it's going to be rife for confusion. So I try to keep that in mind to help myself stay patient. And man, I mean, that is, this is not a time where you want to, I think the cliche they use is learn the hard way. This is not a time. That's why I said you can have all the suspicion that you want about what you think is happening, what is not happening, what this really is. Fine. Hold those. Suspicions. We should question everything. Mr. Fuller says that that's in the code. I totally agree. All of that's it. Unless you have like completely infallible data. And I mean, it should be data we have studied this for the last 25 years. It's conclusive. We double checked, quadruple checked everything. It's solid. This is what it is. And it ain't no Rona. You got that type of study in depth, qualified research analysis. Oh, okay, fine. 
let's trash these messages and get to it. But I mean, if this is just, you know, going off what you saw on YouTube, I read a few ports, reports and, you know, whatever. Like, come on. This is not one where you want to get down the road and then whoops, I was wrong. Looks like I got a hold of some bad information. Isn't that what they said before? Got a hold of some bad information. Dang. Looks like they, there were no web. Like, this is not one where you want to be wrong. Take this serious. And then if we find out, oh, okay, this is right. I had suspicions all the time, but I was taking it. That is the logical way to approach things. Dr. Rasayan said that. In fact, everybody in the world that we've talked to has said that this is one I guess we can do a cow's brag maybe not worth a Vitamix but I mean just this week since last Friday we had our listener in China on the program we had our global Sunday talk our folks in the United Kingdom we had Marquise Treve on from Brazil just since last Friday all of them taking it serious nobody of the opinion that there is no Rona or that this is some nonsense. They all had some suspicions and, oh yeah, some racist shenanigans are going on. That being said, Rona is real. We are taking it serious. That was the consensus around the world thus far. Uh, let's see. Uh, blackmail engineer. I think he should be with us as well. Might be in the coon man, Ralph Northam. That was, I love that clip. He was supposed to be gone this time last year. They were talking, well, not May last year, but they were talking about getting rid of him. And now he is riding out the crisis and looking like a star. The only medical sitting governor who is a medical doctor making great decisions to protect the Commonwealth. The coon man, Ralph Northam, uh, blackmail engineer should be with us also. Um, so I was listening to the um, clips and one thing that struck out was the move bombing um, just the depravity of the situation and the people um, they, I, it's, they really dropped bombs on a house full of people from a helicopter um that sounds like something they say happens in the quote-unquote Middle East, right? So, um, you know how they like to stereotype everyone. So there's that. Um, I have a workplace racism thing. Um, just a question, I guess. Um, I'm pursuing, uh, let's say I'm pursuing um, some recourse for things that happened on my job, but I also want to leave my job. Um but if I leave my job, I can no longer seek recourse um, because I'll no longer be with the uh, organization. So then my um, recourse will have to be dropped. But I really do want to leave. And I think, like, the, the recourse is, you know, I'm supposed to be, supposed to get some compensation and some stuff, but like I also don't want to stay at the job in order to uh, get possible compensation. So, but at the same time, um, you know, I am seeking recourse. So I don't. I'm just conflicted on um, what what would someone do? Like, do you, do you feel like leaving makes more sense or staying and pursuing recourse? 
how long um, like this recourse because I mean sometimes these recourse procedures can take like years like do you have any like valid timetable like this is going to be a process that will take a month this will be a process that will take two weeks this will be a process that will take five years mm-hmm. well um, Corona completely messed up the schedule mm. so things are from what I hear things are pushed back like 10 months at least but I know people who were doing stuff in 2018 and still have not been able to finish the procedure because they're still waiting on something to happen. They're like, there's certain steps. So they're waiting on a step that I haven't even got gotten to yet. Mm. Um, Typically they say it should be 10 months normally, but within 10 months, but that's really not the case. It's, for like a year and a half to two years. Wow. See, that's, that is important. <laughs> that is super important. Now, I know uh, Mr. Fuller, Mr. Edward Williams, a lot of folks who talk about if you're going to pursue uh, remediation using counter-racist logic in the workplace, be prepared. Like, it might be a year. What he just said, it might be a year and a half that you might have to be, you know, involved in all of this and taking notes and asking questions, answering questions, doing meetings, reading emails, going over policy and procedure, like be serious with yourself. Like, are you prepared to invest the next year and a half, two years, whatever it is in this process? If you don't right. want to engage in all that, then just be honest. Cause for some folks that just, it's not, it's a time and energy thing. Like for some people it's like, Hey, I got other things to do. Like this is not, just the economics of this, it's not worth the time and energy for me to invest two years in some sort of remediation in this while I have these other things that are happening, even though I was mistreated. Uh, so for some people, yeah, that's logical to, you know, just, Hey, I don't, I don't have the time and energy right now to pursue this for two years. Um, and I mean now, Oh man, it's not going to be two years now. It's going to be, Oh my Lord, the Rona has exactly what you said. The Rona has messed up everything. Like, Oh, I don't know. We might have to put this one in the hopper until, uh, what is your July, 2024 looking like? Cause we got to get personal protective equipment. We got masks. I think Bob has a cough. Like, yeah, we're going to have to put all the Negro troubles, uh, on the way, way backside of the calendar. So, I mean, if you got other career opportunities, like if you, and the other thing I guess I would say to workplace racism, neutralizing workplace racism every Friday, 8 PM Eastern, 5 PM Pacific. If you, sometimes we get signals from the creator. Mr. Fuller says that, uh, particularly for a workplace, like sometimes, you know, like this is a really toxic environment and I need to get out of this place. Like it's impacting my mental health and well being. Like, I need to get out of here. Like sometimes you get those signals. We're going to another plantation, but hopefully this is a better plantation where I can get better compensation, uh, where I have maybe less direct racism, that type of thing. Something that is an improvement over where I am now. Uh, when I relocate, maybe I can lower some of my stress and be more productive in my career. Sometimes that needs to happen, but we can be resistant or the system of racism just does a lot of things directly, indirectly to kind of keep us mired in these types of toxic environments, if you're already getting signals that you want to get out of there, 
I would go ahead and get my exit plan rolling. I would work through the remediation while you're there. Um, but I would be working on my exit strategy because I mean, just, yeah, I mean, if it's two years anyway with the Rona, it's, it could be a decade. Like, yeah. They'll just, they'll make up all kinds right. of excuses now. And it'll sound cute too. It'll sound really justified. Okay. Um, that's about what I was thinking. Um, yeah, I, I think it's time to go. It's too toxic. Yeah. Process it. You can, uh, you know, take, take some time and kind of think, uh, in terms of the timetable and what the benefit is going to be too. Like, is it going to be worth like at the end of the two years, if this even works out in my favor, which, you know, is often, hmm, um, you know, a risky proposition at best. Uh, but even if it does, like, what's the best case scenario going to be? Like, am I going to get, you know, exactly whatever you think would be, you know, just compensation for what happened here? Is, is, is that in the realm of possibilities? How likely is that? Those are the type of questions I would ask myself. Uh, and then I would look at what, what type of opportunities, like it's easier to hang out and do all that if you don't have other opportunities, but if you're working on that exit uh, strategy and it becomes a successful strategy where you have other opportunities, then that would also dramatically, you know, change the equation too, I would think. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Other folks, anybody else with input? Workplace racism is Fridays. Anybody else before we get to our other folks? Have you heard? Caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. I was thinking about uh, on a part of the audio segment, where I think the term intimidation was being used. Uh, and it seems like when a word like that is used to describe uh, white people, it doesn't seem like they're being critical of them. Because uh, I know they were using that term and then the word like militia. And they were talking about the don't tread on me flag. But it didn't seem like they were trying to... Uh, at least categorize them as terrorists. They're being massively disruptive. And like you mentioned, the guy going into the subway shop with a bazooka, uh, I'm thinking in my mind, that person is looking for conflict, uh, in my opinion, particularly with a uh, black person or somebody non-white, mainly black. And I think that they were looking looking to see um, black people engaged in some kind of crime towards them. them. Uh, And they need some kind of excuse to get out there and be criminals themselves. But black people are uh, typically the means to put the blame on things like that. Um, I had a few reports here locally. uh, First being there, there was, I guess they called it confusion on the reports where they voted, the county commissioners voted to uh, raise the emergency order for people not to wear masks uh, or to wear masks on their own choice or their own choosing. And they reversed it on Tuesday to where people had to go back to it being mandatory for people to wear masks to go into an essential business. And someone was trying to uh, 
doing emergency injunction to sue the county on this issue, and the judge immediately threw it out. So you still kind of got that thing going on with people not wanting to um, wear the mask. And then at the same time, there was a report later on in the week where some workers at the VA, um, they had they have issues getting uh, the protective equipment, um, masks and gloves. So you got people who protest and not wearing them, and then you got people protesting where they can't even get them uh, at the, the Veterans Hospital of all places. And uh, there was another case that happened where 15 um, people were shot, looked like these appeared to be victims, uh, and they were using the term block party. Uh, and I think that's another word that's being used toward black people to uh, our detriment whereas white people are dumping, at least from my suspicion, dump 30, well, 13,000 pounds of trash on a beach here in Florida, and hardly nobody was sighted, you know what I mean? So, uh, but yeah, 15 people were shot. I don't think there were any deaths or anything, but I just think we definitely have to be careful and remember to take this serious and uh, minimize the anti-blackness as much as you can. And that's all I have to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Minimize anti-blackness, take things serious. Definitely agree with that. And that's what I mean, like, when he talked about how they they flip-flopped on things. Like, they started off and they said, all right, we're going to do voluntary math. They might have been listening in to some of your colleagues' tweets and stuff, like... uh, what is it? Not, not see coming, not see that coming. Upset about the mask and all. So they saw their tweets. All right, all right, all right. We'll make it. We'll make it voluntary. If you don't want to wear a mask, you don't have to wear a mask. We won't bully you on that one. And then they come back a couple of. Oh, we're gonna make it mandatory. You you got to wear a mask. We we tried that. Eh, we we got it. That sort of going. They said that in the report. When you have a situation where information is changing, you're getting updates and that sort of thing. They said that sort of environment rife for confusion and that's why I've said from the beginning why not just take it serious from the beginning why even start the volunteer we're doing the masks and that's just that I don't care if you're upset about it this is a pub this is a global health crisis stop being idiots like why not just we're going to use logic if you're upset about it that's fine and we'll have folks out you know to fuss at you and reprimand you or whatever it's going to be. You, they got uh, Rona jail. We talked to folks in China. They got quarantine jail. They're not doing all that. Like you're going to wear a mask or you're going to, you know, Rona prison. And that's going to be that. Like we could be serious or we could horse around at the worst place in the world to be for all of this right here. Not taking this seriously. Uh, let's see. We'll be here Tuesday. Dr. Andre Perry, know your price. All about white supremacy, racism. Although the book was published this month, it is not nothing to do with the Corona situation. It is just about white people practicing racism, white supremacy and devaluing, uh, not developing areas where black people live in the United States and how that uh, is corrosive to all aspects of people act here. All areas of people activity for black people. 
Uh, that's what Know Your Price is about. He will relate that to our COVID-19 situation on Tuesday, uh, May 26th, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. He is a black male uh, author of Know Your Price. But looking forward to that. We'll hear his thoughts. Uh, did any other folks have thoughts that they wanted to get in before? Oh, the protest. I wanted to make sure I got that in as well. The protest. I think a number of folks that said that because in Michigan, they had like a brawl that broke out there the past few days where you had white people with arms out protesting a few times. And then uh, some black people came in to provide security for a state representative. Uh, and then people came back to protest again. So when you got that type of just chaos, uh, yes, it's it's obviously at some point somebody's going to slip on a banana peel and gun goes off or whatever uh, bumps into somebody or anything uh, it's just right a number of people that said just trying to follow logic this looks like a situation where eventually somebody is going to get hurt there's going to be some violence uh, physical violence at one of these situations it just seems inevitable uh, hopefully I would just try not to be at these events take things we're supposed to be social distancing I thought I would not be at these events, but it seems like it's been mostly white people. So hopefully victims of white supremacy won't be in harm's way at any of these uh, events when these type of things happen. Uh, But did anybody, any suggestions before we wrap up on dealing with other uh, victims of racism or the workplace racism situation that we heard? Uh, Do you leave now or do you try to stay for the remediation process? Uh, Yes, Gus, it's my understanding that uh, during the program, uh, there was a request for uh, views on professional voting. Or, or it was more so with people uh, trying to chastise you if you are not going <laughs> to vote for uh, Joe Biden, uh, other victims of racism saying that, you know, if you don't vote for Joe Biden, it's like you're voting for Donald Trump. Or especially if you sound like you're going to vote for Trump, people are going to fuss at you or sounding like you're not going to vote at all. Uh, people fussing at you for that victims fussing at you for that. Yeah. Well, I, I would, I would say uh, in a conversation's codified logic, there would be no quote unquote winning discussion with a person that has that particular type of uh, understanding slash attitude uh, at all. Uh, I would not uh, uh, state against someone participating in the process uh, simply because uh, you may, no guarantee, you may get that uh, that street, uh, the potholes in that street uh, straightened out uh, as far as professional voting is concerned or in voting for another person. That's another situation altogether. Uh, and and uh, I have not uh, seen or indicated anywhere where uh, the two personalities, uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, uh, individually have directly done something directly specifically for non-white people, uh, non-white black people. Uh, as far as they're concerned in this part of the world. Uh, so it's just, it just you know, my call would be, well, we'll let's talk about something else, or I'll see you uh, the next time in, a, in sometime in the future, you know, as far as that person who wants to debate and argue uh, over me 
me voting or not voting for whoever, you know, whoever, let alone talking about the whole idea of voting in the first first place. That's, that's only going to be an argument uh, because there's nothing that you can say other than what they would want you to say or respond in the way that they would want you to respond on that. Uh, I've looked at that pretty much to where that's what I came up with, and that's my code. Thank you. Definitely no need to be in arguments with other victims of racism on, uh, yeah, about voting, anything, particularly during everything that's happening right now. Like, yes, no need to be in arguments about that. Uh, that's one of those that you can think from the very beginning. I think Mr. Fuller, I talked with him about this, uh, some years back and that's why he has it at the front of the book. If you don't understand white supremacy, racism, what it is, how it works everything else will only confuse you. Like if someone is even talking to you in that manner, it would seem they might have some confusion uh, about the system of white supremacy racism. So I wouldn't argue. I wouldn't be right. If you know, they seem like they want to engage and we can have rapport and use logic fine. But if not like social distancing, that is great. I will wish you the best luck for more years. And uh, yeah, I will be making my decision and, and, you know, getting to it for November and we would just move on to talk about something else, but definitely no arguments. We got the Rona face mask. Got to make sure we got toilet paper, lots of important problems and things to worry about. Arguing about the election cannot be high on our, on anyone's list. If you're a victim of racism, that's gotta be a real low priority. So yeah, right on Joe Biden, whatever. Great. Best of luck for November, and uh, yes, we'll we'll see how all that works out for you. Um, we did our three hours. Uh, we will be here on Tuesday. Uh, hopefully, everybody will stay as safe as you can, taking everything serious uh, over the next few days. Uh, I guess this would normally be a so-called holiday weekend. I thought we were going to be so cool that we were going to be out of the country, as they say, for the holiday weekend. Eh. Uh, but yeah. Uh, it's supposed to be a holiday weekend. Hopefully people will stay inside. Uh, a lot of parks and things are not really open. So you have kind of limited, uh, muted options for going out and celebrating. I will say in terms of encouragement for staying in, uh, Friday, that was yesterday, yesterday evening, I was downstairs, probably fiddling around with my Vitamix and I heard like explosions and I don't know what was going on. So I stopped and I was like, Oh, they're, they're, uh, firecrackers I think they could have been shooting but it sounded like it was probably firecrackers and I was like oh that's right it's Memorial uh, Day weekend so they call it and then I thought I was like wait a minute we're we're under stay at home order until the end of the month they started easing some of the restrictions but I mean we're still under stay at home order in Washington state and we still got the health crisis social distancing and all that how is going outside to let off firecrackers how is that essential during the middle of all of this I just see that would be a great reason uh, to stay in like I'm not going outside and you got folks who apparently are not taking this very serious and they're out gallivanting and partying uh, and causing chaos battle simulation as though it's normal times I know a lot of times what's accompanied with that is firing off guns people want to do a little shooting go outside I'm good you already know you got a whole lot of new white 
gun owners with a lot of new ammunition. I would be staying in the house. I would think there's probably going to be more sobriety checkpoints out this weekend just because that's what they always do for these type of holidays. I know in some places it's getting warmer and people are going to the beach and stuff. So I would think there probably will be more enforcement officers out this weekend. So probably a good time to still stay in. Uh, take things serious. Uh, there are the sickness is white supremacy. So there are many things to worry about, including the Rona. That said, sobriety would be best. Let's keep our brain computer working in optimal condition. Keep ourselves safe and thinking well so we can use logic and plenty of it. Uh, in addition to being sober, just said we should be staying in kind of unsafe outside for a lot of reasons. White people being at the center of all of those reasons. If you are going to go out, be safe. You know, if you need paperwork, your hand sanitizer, mask, whatever it is, be safe. If you are going to travel out, be sober, buckled. If you are behind the wheel, you are not on the phone. Uh, again, you got a lot of aggressive racists. Some of them have a badge. Some of them don't. Many of them badge or no have a firearm. We want to try to minimize contact uh, when going out so that we don't have to be talked to, have any sort of uh, interaction with any of these folks as best we can. Uh, the little things that we can control, not being on that phone, being buckled up, not going out at all. Little things that we can do to control. Hey, let's do that. Sometimes even staying at home does not suffice. Brianna Taylor. That's it. Amber Geiger. That's it. Uh, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy, even if they are voting for Joe Biden. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim no brother problem. you're a victim right. i'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my conditioning even my conditioning has been conditioned. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.